You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. There, there really are a lot of things I, th- I think that we could be doing to influence our children to be maybe more tolerant, more open, uh, less judgmental. We, we have a lot of issues that um, that are out there. It doesn't mean that we need to, you know, ins- you know, motivate them to go be a great, you know, politician or get engaged in every movement and opportunity out there. But one of the things that I would recommend, I guess, to all of us is to see what we can do while we're talking with our children about what's going on in the world to see if we can't teach our children to be a little more tolerant. And a, and a lot more of uh, of peacemakers, not where you just have to stick your head in the sand and 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 you know accept peace, but promote peace. Find other ways to be more inclusive. So some tools that uh, I would suggest that we all kind of look at to help our kids. Uh, number one, broaden our pool of understanding. A lot of us we talked about it in the first hour. Just the simple power of our language. And having um, – because I'm bilingual and, under, and and fluent in Spanish, it, it changes your brain. It changes how I relate to people from other cultures simply because I appreciate deeply um, the Spanish language and, and that culture. It doesn't mean I understand it. It doesn't mean I get it. It doesn't mean I am – uh, would just automatically be brought into the culture. But it does mean because I've studied it and lived abroad, I've been able to to have a different point of view. And there are a lot of different points of view out there. Uh, our earlier guest was talking about the fact that if we just um, could make sure that we in Israel, that Hebrew and Arabic were both um, languages that were being taught, wouldn't that in and of itself, improve our ability to understand each other and communicate to find real solutions. So broaden our pool of understanding. Give your children more opportunities. Seek out more opportunities of of diversity in every in every single way, cultural uh, diversity, religious diversity, um, ethnic diversity. Gather data from other people. Give your child the opportunity to experience children with, with other special needs or um, other issues so that they can broaden their horizon. There is a reason this younger generation is much more open-minded than even the generation before it, and some of that is simply um, they're experiencing it more. Another idea that might help us be more tolerant and raise more tolerant kids is let's all avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or sensitive. A lot of us oversimplify everything. We make it good or bad, right or wrong, black or white, up or down, guns or no. And the reality is, as we've talked about on the show so many times, it's much more complicated than just black or white. Also, let's be careful that we don't sensationalize everything. Everything that glitters is not gold, folks. And we probably need to not only just teach our kids that, but make sure that we're not paying, um, we're not, we're not getting too sucked in to all the sensational headlines and the, uh, you know, the latest, most sensational thing of the day. Watch out for that. Another goal is is make sure that just because you're sensitive to an issue doesn't mean um, I have to be sensitive to it. 
we can be too sensitive to certain things. And um, sometimes that, I think, creates an, an experience where none of us uh, can feel safe doing anything anymore because everybody's sensitive to something. I can worry about your sensitivities. I can also make sure that I don't become so sensitive that I'm incapable of seeing the world from another frame of view. Uh, avoid the online pile-on is the thing I try to teach my kids. If if they see stuff going on on social media, don't jump in. Don't just pile on. Don't just be another voice against. First think it through. Understand your position and make a really effective case for your position. Uh, I had somebody talking the other day that I, I heard them talking about the fact that um, their wife – does kind of get involved in a lot of social media, you know, issues where she's sensitive to certain things. But what she does is she goes slowly about um, writing her position. And she writes it in such a way that it actually is additive to the conversation. It's not a pile on. It's additive. And um, she makes a case with data and support. And it actually elevates the conversation. So if you want to be involved in the social media, I teach my kids, then be involved, but be additive. Be bringing something to the equation. Don't just pile on. Don't just jump in. Don't just spew negative stereotypes or prejudice. Jump in and actually bring some light to the discussion. Bring something new that others wouldn't think about, and um, that way your conversation and your piece of the conversation is is helpful. Another powerful thing I think that helps intolerance is um, let our values and our principles actually appear in our talk. So if you want your children to be tolerant, then you've got to be talking about tolerance and you've got to be talking about your principles, whether it's fairness, whether it's decency, respect. But if you believe in those things, if you believe in loving your neighbors, then Let's make it be more than just a concept. Let's make it become part of our dialogue and description. I can't tell you how many times with uh, people as I'm as I'm working with couples, for example, that have conflict, they their how they manage the conflict is in no way tied to their values, to the principles that they espouse. Over and over, they people come in and tell me how, you know, they were married in a church, they were married in a temple, they were married in a synagogue, and yet their church, their synagogue, and their temple never seem to be appear when they're actually in their conflict. If we want people to believe what we say, then let's see if we couldn't integrate more of our values into and our principles into how we talk. So it, it's going to be hard for your kids to know what to stand for if they don't know what the values are and the principles are. So talk more about it. And that work that by uh, Dr. Madeline Sherrick in her book, um, Superheroes Club, it's it's about talking about your principles and sharing your principles and then telling your kids, this is what we believe in. This is why we do what we do. Um, and what's powerful about this is once you've laid down those principles – then every single issue that comes up, whether it's shootings in Florida or immigration issues or, um, you know, the latest political discovery or why mom or dad's a Republican or a Democrat, each one of those conversations could come down to our principles. 
not our positions on any of those issues. There's got to be principles at play here. And how powerful would it be to hand down to your children the idea that principles are alive in our family, guys? Principles govern how we react to each other, how we interact with each other. And uh, then all of a sudden, you've, you've probably handed down something that will be invaluable and um, hopeful to your kids. Last but not least, if you want to create tolerance with your conversations with your children, build bridges that um, that you can build on. Defer to uh, to go face to face, look eye to eye, and and figure out where can we start to build a bridge on certain issues. You don't need to finalize the bridge, but if you can see a place where we could take two different shores uh, on different sides of a river and start to build a bridge between the two, let's start doing that. If you can see a way that you can actually create a bridge between uh, immigration issues by appreciating immigrants and by supporting security, if you find a place where that can happen, start building the bridge there. We need more people to be building bridges and we also need, I think, each and every one of us to be willing to cross some of those bridges and, and be willing to go to both sides and understand both sides of the issue. Many times we just – we're staring across the river at each other with a completely different view on the other side of the river. But because we've never walked on the other side of the river, we don't ever understand it. And instead of just running to one side of the river or the other side of the river, we need people that can understand both sides of the issues to communicate – what they know. I, I see it all the time with uh, LGBT issues where some people don't understand it. And instead of being frustrated or angry that some people don't understand the LGBT issue or others that just do not understand um, the whatever, the Christian view of LGBT issues, um, we, we don't – I don't need the polarization there. What I need is somebody that is a Christian LGBT uh, person that can talk both sides of the issue and help us all start to bridge some of this, understand some of this. That's why there's power when we've had these experiences in our lives with whatever the issue, with whether it's religious freedom issues, whether it's LGBT rights. When we can converge and bring these together, there's power in how we can solve that. And instead of always polarizing everything, there is power if we could actually take the the same issue and not polarize it but bring us into one conversation with each other that's informed. If you've been able to bridge things before, please help the rest of us bridge them now. That's how you create tolerance. Again, let your values do the talking. Avoid the online pile-on. Avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or sensitive and broaden your pool of understanding. And if you have built a bridge, if you understand where there are bridges that can be built between differing opinions, will you please start building those bridges? It's just another thing that we all need as humans here on this earth. Powerful stuff, folks. Uh, Tolerance. It's really what life is about, I think, is understanding that we are all in this same journey together, and we're all just trying to get through it with... uh, with more love, hopefully. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Levinson makes a great point that be careful in in being really quick to regulate, especially letting the government regulate, because, you know, when you let the camel's nose in under the tent, it's coming in. Um, and remember that regardless of your uh, politic, you you may 
you got to be careful because anybody could put their person in there and and start doing what they need to do. If everyone were just neutral and out for the best interest of the whole country, that would be great. But sometimes politics gets in the way and uh, decisions are made by people that don't necessarily understand the whole depth of the issue. So what do you do? Do you? I guess you you got you can just complain about it. You can just whine about your lack of freedom. Or there are some other things that you might do. And I wanted to throw some of these other ideas out there so that maybe you could become a change agent instead of just a you know a pain in the neck um, and a complainer. One thing we could all do is try to understand the issue better. So instead of complaining about what's going on with social media, um, we could start actually using that same energy to understand the deeper pain behind the issue, identify what's really going on, uh, understand it, research it. Don't just research it from your favorite three sites that you always go to. Dig deeper, dig wider, and try to understand the issue at a completely different level. And then see what that does to you. By gathering more and more information, do you do you see it as a bigger problem or do you see it as you know a, a, a more balanced solution? Maybe one of the reasons why Dr. Levinson is saying hold back on allowing government to intervene is because in all of his research, he's seen a lot of history where government intervention hasn't made it better. Uh, Another way we can handle our complaints or our fears or our insecurities is reframe the issue. So instead of just complaining about the problem uh, that others might be creating for you or this internet or whatever social media might complain for you, reframe the issue um, and, and alter the way that you actually see the problem. Sometimes the biggest problem we face is actually how we're seeing the problem. Um, reframe the 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 issue as maybe not necessarily a social media issue, but reframe it as Dr. Levinson did as a as a you know First Amendment rights issue. That so now you're going to allow the government to start saying who and what social media companies can exist and and who can't exist. Be careful uh, how you see it. Also, be careful how you frame it. Change it. Instead of complaining and hoping for change, you could actually start working immediately to create the change that you seek. Go start implementing the changes that you've learned about, the changes. Go fight for it. Go run for office. Go become an advocate for the issue and fight and and start becoming a leader in the issue so you can at least um, influence it. There's nothing worse than the pains of having a problem that you can't influence, right? So improve your influence. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, like I'm going to be able to change it. Well, no. Like, yeah, you could. I mean, there's many examples in our world where one person made a change, decided to take on an issue, and uh, many a Nobel Peace Prize has been won by these people. Many a a movement has started by just the one person. But they didn't do it willy-nilly. They didn't do it uninformed. They were informed. They saw the need and they took on the calling to go be the change agent and become the change. Or last but not least, just accept what it is. Accept it. You know, Accept this is how life works and figure out how you're going to live your life in relation to it. Uh, like manage your own data. Make sure you're not overextending. Get off social media sites that you don't need to be on. Go in and change all of your passcodes, passwords, and other information um, minimize what you put online. Maximize uh, the messaging you want to be out there. 
I mean, there's a lot of things you still can do by just accepting the way this is the way the system goes and and uh, living that system the way you can live it, right? So you've you got a few choices. Instead of just complaining, you can also understand it, reframe it, change it, or, ex- or accept it and become the change that this uh, world and country needs. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Well, whether you're surfing the web, watching TV, or even listening to the radio, you might hear sensational headlines. Capturing an audience's attention sometimes results in misinformation being spread. A recent study from the University of College, uh, University College of London, has resulted in some news outlets claiming you can blame lying on your brain. These misleading headlines has our next guest concerned. So here to set the record straight on what role the blame plays in lying is Dr. Richard uh, uh, Richard Gunderman. Richard Gunderman is Chancellor's Professor of Radiology, Pediatrics, Medical Education, Philosophy, Liberal Arts, Philanthropy, and Medical Humanities at uh, Indiana University. And we're honored to have him on the show. Dr. Gunderman, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Matt. Talk to us. Um, it's, it is. All of a sudden, we'll hear a study that says your brain is responsible for your lying or your brain is responsible for your eating. And we, you know, a lot of times we end up blaming the brain for a lot of problems. And it seems like we forget that there's still a there's still a human behind there. I think you're absolutely right. The more we understand about the structure and function of the brain and how it correlates to what we're thinking and feeling, uh, the more likely we seem to be to want to shift responsibility from uh, human persons to uh, those three pounds of gray matter inside our skulls. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I think that does us and, and certainly would do our children and our grandchildren a disservice by creating the uh, false presumption that we're not somehow responsible for our choices and actions. Mm. Talk about it. I mean, a lot of the argument is simply that the brain is, you know, it's like a machine. And once the machine gets going, the machine just does what the machine's supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, if if you think of a clock, for example, maybe a, a grandfather clock is a model of a machine. You know, there are gears turning in there. And uh, as the hands move around the clock face, uh, you can basically predict in advance exactly where they'll be an hour from now or even uh, a day from now. But that, that model of a machine would be grossly misleading when thinking about the human brain, which for one thing is simply far more complex than any machine, including uh, you know, the most advanced supercomputers we work with every day. Hmm. But, but you know, compared to an automobile or a clock or even uh, the, the, the laptop computers many of us use, the brain is a great deal more complex. As far as we know, it might have... Uh, say, a hundred billion neurons, you know, the, the cells that uh, do most of the uh, processing in the brain, as far as we know, and maybe as, as many as a hundred or two hundred trillion synapses, mm. you know, these are the points where neurons connect to each other. And, and, you know, that just makes our conventional notion of a machine almost uh, uh, ridiculously simplified comparing, compared to what's going on in our heads. Is there, anything, is there any organ in our body more complicated than the brain? Well, 
I, I think the first and important answer to that is we don't know for sure. We, <laughs> we like to assume that we've discovered basically everything that there is to be known, but as a physician with a scientific background, I can tell you that I'm, I'm convinced that what remains to be discovered, including about our own bodies and how our bodies function, uh, probably eclipses what we've discovered to date. But I do think, you know, most uh, neuroscientists and physicians would probably answer your question in the affirmative, that the brain is, in fact, the most complex organ in the human body. But, but that's not in any way to say that we are our brains. Right. In fact, make, differentiate. What is the difference between the brain and the mind? Well, uh, you know, uh, we can anesthetize a person and uh, thinking and, and feeling and acting seems to stop. And we can let the anesthetic wake, wear off and we wake back up. But I, I really don't think we can say that... Uh, what's going on in the brain in terms of uh, neurotransmitters and uh, electrical signals is the same thing as thinking. Hmm. I mean, it, it would be like saying uh, the color red is a particular wavelength in the electromagnetic spectrum, or, uh, you know, falling in love is uh, associated with a change in the balance of certain hormones or neurochemicals. <laughs> Things are associated with each other, just like, uh, you know, when William Shakespeare sits down to write Hamlet or Macbeth, uh, you know, a, a quill and some ink are being dragged across a piece of paper. But it would be uh, silly to say that, uh, you know, those great works of drama are nothing more than spots of ink on a piece of paper. Mm, that was that's a great way to explain it. And in the end, we so we aren't just our brain. We also have a mind. We have a will. We have values, we have uh, our education, we have our environment, we have so many, our hormonal aspects, we have so many different variables that make up why we choose to lie, and yet some researchers will still put that title, let's just blame the brain for the lying. Well, it's so tempting, particularly if you earn your living from doing uh, biomedical research, the sort of thing we can do in laboratories and, you know, you know using right. functional MRI, which is the technique that was used in this University College London study. It, it's really tempting to say, you know, the more we learn about this science, the more we'll understand why, why we do the things we do, including lying. But uh, in fact, anybody who's lied, and I assume that includes yeah. uh, all our listeners and perhaps you and I as well, yep. Matt. In fact, uh, I lie all day. We know that, you know, uh, sometimes it's an offhand sort of thing. Sometimes it's the product of a long uh, process of deliberation. But at some point, we are making a choice to misrepresent the truth. And uh, that's associated with responsibility. You know, people may suffer. Uh, make bad decisions based on our representation, uh, e even if they don't suffer any concrete consequences, you know, in a way we've betrayed our trust with that person. And, uh, you know, those moral consequences, what it means for human relationships in families and communities, you know, even on the national political scene, uh, that, that's something we simply can't afford to neglect or try to push off to one side. Mm. It is so true. Is what what made you? Um, I mean, you're you're an acclaimed uh, 
researcher and teacher. You have you've won so many awards at your university. What made you um, feel such a compelling need to respond to this issue to this article? Well, uh, partly it's the way the news is reported in the headlines. For example, CNN, Cable News Network, ran a headline that said, lying may be your brain's fault, honestly. <laughs> so, you know, if, if I read that and, in fact, read the subsequent article, I might easily come away with the impression, well, this lying thing, that's just the product of neurons and neurochemicals and synapses, and uh, even PBS reported telling a lie makes the way for the brain to keep lying. I mean, there's this shift of uh, causation, a shift in responsibility from the human person to the brain. And and, and I think that's quite dangerous. Hmm. I agree. Like, make people own it, right? Own? Yeah, I mean, you you may remember, this will date me, Matt, I, I don't know how old you are, but 47. I remember on uh, the old Laugh-In television comedy yeah, series, yeah. which, by the way, was rated about number one in the U.S. in the late 60s. There was a comedian named Flip Wilson uh, yeah. who would say, the devil made me do it. <laughs> and, you know, I think we're uh, substituting a, a, another false actor for the devil in this case, namely the brain. You know, mm. well, my brain made me do it. Of course, I didn't want to do it. And, you know, had I been more rested or had more caffeine on board or had my, uh, you know, a state of mind been better, of course I never would have done that. But, but you know, it was my brain's fault. That's just uh, no way uh, to lead a human life and certainly not the way we want to bring up our children and grandchildren who need to understand that, you know, we need to see ourselves as responsible and take responsibility for the choices we make in life. It seems we like I see this more and more um, just doing this radio show where I we're constantly finding other stories like this, the brain, you know, research, the fMRIs studies are coming out more abundantly. It seems like everyone has more access to an fMRI. And uh, so a lot of claims, and then it's almost like one claim immediately negates the last claim, which negates the next claim. And I think who's – what's real science anymore? And it, it's almost more becoming so popularized by the media, some of the science, that you feel like the science is suffering. Well, what, I mean, sometimes these things get somewhat sensationalized or yeah. you know, blown a little bit out of proportion. What the researchers showed here – was that a, a part of the brain called the amygdala, yep. it's associated, broadly speaking, with things like emotion and decision-making, that as subjects told lies one after another, the activation of that part of the brain decreased, which could be interpreted as meaning that we just become accustomed to lying. You know, it gets, yeah. basically it gets easier. But that in itself is a bit of a conceptual leap, and, and even if that's true, uh, those changes in the brain don't prove that, uh, you know, it's the brain that's making the choice to lie. Mm, it's so true. I love a lot of your work on The Atlantic. And we'll take a break and come back. Really, go check out theatlantic.com and look up Dr. Richard Gunderman. Such interesting subjects and topics that he takes on, um, a lot, mostly medical kind of related, but uh, just how you see patients, how we look at our doctors, you know, who's who's making suggestions that drive us uh, to, to make medical decisions in our lives. 
powerful insight. And today we're talking about, you know, who we blame for lying. We need to be taking our own responsibility for what our brain is doing, um, at least understanding it as much as we can. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. And if we could help, help you become the kind of person you want to become. We'll be back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Richard Gunderman. He is uh, Chancellor's Professor of Radiology at uh, University of Indiana and is also uh, the nine-time recipient of Indiana University Trustees Teaching Award, received the 2012 Robert Glazer Award, the highest teaching award of the Association of American Medical Colleges. He's authored nearly 500 articles, uh, scholarly articles, and has published eight books. The last book uh, was uh, titled X-Ray Vision, The Evolution of Medical Imaging and Its Human Significance. Dr. Richard Gunderman, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure, Matt. Where does, where's the future of this uh, as we kind of move into more of how they did the study of imaging now is we, – we now are learning a lot about how the brain works, how the amygdala works um, with X-ray, with, with a, a fMRI. Um, talk about how looking in the brain is going to help us understand maybe the psychology, mental health issues at a different level. Well, there's no doubt that the brains of people with mental illnesses and the brains with so-called normal or healthy healthy people differ in some respects. Uh, Sometimes different parts of the brain are larger or smaller. In other cases, they're more or less activated, which when we're talking about fMRI really just means they they get more blood flow. That's what we mean Mm. by activation, which suggests that they're working harder. We know that uh, the brains of people uh, differ. In fact, in some respects, the brains of adults and children differ. The brains of men and women differ. The brains of uh, middle-aged and elderly adults differ. So there's no doubt that the brain is a dynamic organ and changes over the course of a lifespan. And I would also uh, be happy to say that as we learn things, uh, that learning is associated with changes in the brain. Hmm. Uh, But to say, you know, that we can blame uh, criminal activity or something like uh, more prosaic dishonesty uh, on the brain, all those neurons, uh, I I think that's, as I've said, dangerous because it uh, sort of undermines the notion that we're responsible for our actions, and it's also very misleading. You and I still, uh, you know, need to consider our course of action, what what the options are that are available to us, and uh, deliberate over what we think is best. Hmm. And those decisions are something we need to be prepared to take responsibility for. Well, and it it seems like... Just because I have more blood flow and noted through the fMRI to my amygdala, then they have to interpret what that's doing, right? I mean, it could just simply be I'm more in a fight or flight mode because I know I'm lying than it is yeah, but- that the, that my amygdala is creating. Oh, no, but then they saw the blood flow became less over time. I see. It's That's right. So the idea is that this part of the brain associated with emotion and decision making is actually less activated 
you know, that there might be less emotional response to what I'm doing as I, you know, lie one time after another. Habitualize it, yeah. We do not know for sure that that's what that means. You know, it's a reasonable hypothesis, and to some degree it can be tested, but uh, it, it could mean something else. Do do you think there will be a day? And I I have two brothers that are radiologists, and I'm always picking their brains about this. Um, more and more, we're using you know uh, these these instruments to get in and see what's going on in the brain. Will there be a day that before we prescribe, for example, um, antidepressants or anti anxiety meds, that we will more naturally just evaluate through imaging the brain before we do it? I think that is definitely a possibility. Right now, in many cases, it would appear to be prohibitively expensive. But over time, it could be our tests become more sophisticated and informative, and uh, the cost goes down. And we might determine, you know, that, uh, say, an antidepressant that would work well in patient A would be ineffective in patient B or might even cause uh, undesirable Mm. side effects in patient B, and we should try another medication. I I think that's definitely a possibility in the future. Because a more personalized medicine based on an an understanding of, uh, you know, the structure and function of a patient's brain. Yeah. I mean, we use imaging for for a lot of diagnoses just not mental health quite yet, it doesn't seem like, and yet... Yeah, not very much, but certainly for a brain tumor, for example, Mm. you know, that's by and large a diagnosis that's going to be made with a CT scan or an MRI scan of a patient's brain. Hmm. That's fantastic. I mean, really, as a and as a radiologist, that's got to be pretty exciting for you to see how much more we're able to learn. I mean, do you, do you like the fact that universities now are using a lot more fMRI to to actually do their studies with? Yeah, I think it uh, it's you know it's a field that shows great promise. A hundred years ago. To study the brain, we very often had to remove it <laughs> from the patient yeah. or the animal. That ruined a lot of things. Yeah. in life, you know, and then and then uh, slice it up and stain it and look it out under a microscope. But today, we have these wonderful in vivo or you know in life while while, while the alive. patient or yeah. subject is still living, we can actually watch the brain in action. So this is without a doubt uh, a new era in our understanding of the brain. We just need to be careful that we don't get swept away by the potential of these new techniques to the point where we want to make a human being a brain and nothing more mm. you know so true if, if you know if we could see the brain scan we would know the person that is just dead wrong right in, in important respects you could look at the brain of albert einstein or the brain of william shakespeare and compare it to mine and it might be fairly hard to tell the difference mm. you know the what the way you really tell a difference would be to engage those people in a conversation watch them do your their thing that's and, you so know good. we quickly realize that uh, we've got two geniuses and one dud on our hands <laughs> <laughs> not true but but isn't that that's the point too is uh, get to know the people, right? Understand what's in their heart. They're, I mean, even, again, we, as parents, I think we do the same thing. We just might call it a lie, but it also may be with our children. It, the lie was not the point. The point was they didn't feel safe. They didn't know how to communicate the truth. They didn't know, they didn't have the moral code tightly, you know, in, entrenched in their belief system. 
Yeah. Uh, now, if the, the right if, response to lying isn't neuroimaging, it's education. That's right. You know, in conversation. I mean, if if you're going out to dinner with somebody you think you might want to marry someday. Uh, you know, the, the the way to find out who they are and determine whether they're the person you want to spend the rest of your life with is, by and large, to to talk with them. You not know, not have them image. It will never suffice to just get, uh, you know, here are the results of your potential mate's uh, functional MRI imaging. <laughs> now make your choice. Right. I mean, it's just... That's not the way it is. It's not the way it's it's supposed to be, is it? Plus no. the media. You because you do a lot of writing with the Atlantic, and you're such a, a, a I think a, a really strict uh, academic as well, publishing five hundred plus articles. How 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 do you inform the media um, to make sure that they don't twist and turn your research? It seems like that's still the responsibility, I guess, of the researcher to a point, and a responsibility of the media to make sure you're getting it right. Yeah, uh, it's the, there's uh, you know some inherent tension in that, because if you're an academic researcher, you know, you want to, your research to remain funded, you want uh, your colleagues in the field and, and your colleagues at your home institution to have a high level of respect for your work, and sometimes getting your research covered in the national news media uh, helps uh, to achieve that end. But the danger is uh, sometimes we may misstate things or overblow things, uh, which gets us a lot of media attention, but ultimately misleads readers, you know, and people here who hear these uh, stories reported in broadcast media. We just need... Uh, we need some skepticism, some critical thinking, and some good old-fashioned honesty uh, to make sure that we don't overstate what we found. What's your next article that you're writing right now? What's coming up that you'll be releasing in The Atlantic that we all ought to be looking for? Well, the piece I'm working on right now is the idea that uh, even though you're a dying person, you can still, in important respects, be a healthy human being. We see some patients, you know, with terminal illnesses uh, who are, you know, maybe in the last uh, months or even weeks of their life who are just extraordinary examples of human beings who are making the, you know, the time available to them as uh, meaningful as possible. I think uh, I've, I've known people who, despite serious illness, seem to do a lot more living in a day than I managed to get done. And mm. I, I think those are stories that we really need to share. I love that. Oh, we'll have to have you back, Richard, because you really touch on this vein of, I guess, humanity. There's this human side to all of this science, and many times we overlook it and, and fear it. Like in the case of death, we're so like caught up with their dying that we don't have the eyes to see how they're living. Boy, that is really well put, Matt. I couldn't agree more. That's powerful. Well, keep it up, Richard. Uh, great to talk to you and get to know more of what you're doing. Again, Dr. Richard Gunderman's his name at theatlantic.com. Really a resource, I think, for all of us. So many interesting concepts. Um, read and, and then bring the issues up to the people you love. Do a little reading of Dr. Gunderman and find out where you need to, uh, you know, some conversations you might want to bring up powerful stuff. We'll take a break. Helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. As you know, we uh, we always like our producers to, to to go in deep on the issues they're facing in life. And Leanna Tan, one of our uh, producers, has put together a little tangent on what it's like to be what she calls a half-sea. A half-sea is, uh, we'll let her explain it, but it's a challenge faced by many Americans and probably even more in the future. You know when you first meet someone and they ask, where are you from? It's usually a very simple question and a very simple answer, but not in my case. Not because I'm an army brat or grew up in a bunch of different places or anything, but because sometimes I genuinely don't know what people are asking me. Are they asking my home country, my home state, hometown, where I live now? Most of the time, it's none of the above. Usually, people are asking me what ethnicity I am. Well, in case you all are wondering, I'll give away the secret. I'm half Caucasian and half Chinese. It's okay, no one else can ever tell either. But then, once I do tell people, I never hear the end of it. Being mixed races has its advantages, and I wouldn't change it for the world. But it definitely comes with its challenges, too. Let me take you a step into my life and share with you five struggles of being a Habsi. Buying nylons or foundation in Walmart. You know how long it takes me to shop for that kind of stuff? I swear, Walmart is built to accommodate predominantly white people. And white people who go tanning. Those gradation skin tone palettes are missing quite a few colors. It takes me hours because I either end up looking ghostly white, pumpkin orange, Bigly. or some fuchsia color in between. Oh, pretty. Maybe if I can at least match my foundation and nylons, then half of me will be the same color, and then I'll just wear long sleeves and gloves, and no one will be able to tell the difference. Two. Filling out standardized forms. <laughs> this always confused me as a child before I took a test and I had to fill out what my ethnicity was. And back then you could only fill out one bubble or mess up the Scantron machine thing. Back then, they would only give you like five choices. White, black, Asian, Hispanic, or other. That was usually the hardest question on the entire test for me. Whether I filled in the bubble for white or Asian, either way, I'd be half wrong. Having people randomly speak to me in foreign languages. One of the cool things about being mixed ethnicities is that usually that means you're bilingual. So yeah, everyone always asks me to speak Chinese to them. But sadly, the only things I know how to say are the few phrases I remember from a couple high school and college classes like, Why are you laughing? And I have seven people in my family. And then, you know, I'll have my friends' random family members from Mexico start talking to me in Spanish or random people at parties start talking to me in Portuguese or Arabic. I'm flattered, really. But I always seem to be in a constant state of disappointing others. Taking extended family photos. In the summer, I'm too white to fit in with my suntanned American cousins, but much too dark to fit in with my porcelain-skinned Asian side of the family. Whether it's our jet black hair or our cheesy American grins. No matter where you position us, you can always pick out my siblings and I in a family photo at first glance. Stereotypes from all angles. 
just trying to live my life like any other person when a label gets thrown my way. You know, I think it's a common thing for a person to get a good score on a test or to like fashion or to cut their hair short. But when I do it, it must be because I'm Asian. We are Siamese, if you please. Being a have, they can feel like you fit in a little bit everywhere, but fully fit in nowhere at the same time. All by myself anymore. Well, they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Maybe it's because most of the time my face looks an off pink color while my legs look a burnt orange. Oh, pretty. So no one can ever really tell where I'm from. All you haves is out there living a life in limbo. I empathize. And everyone else out there, in my opinion, you don't have to be scared about just asking someone, what ethnicity are you? And remember, people are more complex than a skin tone palette or a Scantron sheet may lead on. So, let's lift the labels and see people for their whole selves, even if that means seeing them as halvesies. Well, I'm Leanna Tam, and that's my little tangent. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Terry's been doing some research about parents that apparently have a little cheating problem. So the Wall Street Journal has this article. It's entitled, Why Do Parents Cheat at Family Board Games? Now, is this is I didn't know this was a big thing. Well, so there's this effort to distract your child from the technology. Yeah. Get them away from the phones and the tablets, computers. And so parents have been purchasing board games. They figure we'll teach them some strategy. They can play some games. It's fun. It's it's more interactive. There's been a 27% growth in board game sales from 2015. Last year, it hit $2.9 billion, according to the whatever marketing group is focused on board games. Uh, Far outpacing sales growth for all toys. Yeah. Right? So a big focus on them. And if you go look, there's all kinds of board games. Yeah, yeah. Varieties everywhere. Online, there's all kinds of companies that try to make unique games. Uh And and for all age groups. But it says – here it says the downside to the old-fashioned family time is the tedium of some of these board games that your five- and six-year-old are at their level to play. Right, right. right. Like a Candyland, Shoots of Ladders, those kind of games. It says your kid almost gets to the end, and then they draw that card that sends them all the way back down to the start, says Ryan O'Connor of Deerfield, New Hampshire. He's a father of five- and six-year-old daughters. He goes, I've got things to do, like you know, make them dinner. I've got to go. <laughs> yeah, i got, I mean, people to see. He goes, that's why parents are palming cards, strategically adding pieces when their children aren't looking, and sometimes oh, outright lying. sure. Not without irony, some parents have used technology to make games go faster. Um, data analyst Ethan Markowitz employed statistical analysis to figure out a more efficient way of hastening shoots and ladders. <laughs> Finding the end of that game. I don't like that yeah. game myself. After one too many mind-numbing games, he goes, just like a senior citizen at the bingo parlor, my son is hooked. <laughs> it's like an all-you-can-eat 
Salad bar. He wrote this on his own blog detailing his finding is all we do is spin, move, spin, move until my son performs his victory dance. Or if I'm unlucky enough to actually win the game, he demands a rematch. Right, because he can't stand to lose. No way. So he's a data analyst. So he went and looked at, at shoots and ladders. There are nine ladders and ten shoots, which means a bias towards losing because the shoots send you back down to the right, bottom of the exactly. board, right? So he programmed a simulation of 10,000 two-player games, which showed the dreariness could last as many as 146 turns. His solution was to tape a new ladder to the board between space 47 and 72. Oh, he that, invented a ladder. Yeah, that lowered the low, the longest game to only 110 moves. Wow. Right? Geez. Barry Wise, a father, set out to help preserve uh, the sanity of parents with his own data analysis, suggesting eliminating the longest shoot spanning 87 or space, space 87 to 24. So they're they're taking what? the kids game and they're trying to figure out how can I do this Little so cheats. the kid doesn't notice. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you just get another game? Okay, so Candyland. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the guy, the 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 one of the two men we just talked about, recommend Candyland with its three point four percent chance of running longer than seventy five moves. Okay, right? how about Legos? He goes also. You have to eliminate the rule Legos. of sending pieces backwards in Candyland. Yeah, it's such demoralizing to the parent when you're like, ah, don't no. go back to the gummy gummy <laughs> drop road or whatever it's called. So Jennifer Hogan Jones of Wichita, Kansas. Yeah. Again, more parents more, cheating. Yeah. She argued on board games. Her her she has a blog apparently about board games, but she says purposeful losing for your child. Right. She says that children like her daughter need to learn how to handle disappointment. The plan is to prepare her for losing in life, so in fifteen years she won't throw a hissy fit and slam the door when she loses out on something at the yeah, office. That's a good point. So she's like we're. We're, 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 we're helping our children. Kids, yeah. Board parents are using a wide variety of tactics to bring their family games like Monopoly and Uno to a close as quick as possible, including palming cards, adding pieces when the kids aren't looking. Uh, they talk about um, how like the, the five and six-year-olds, <laughs> it's kind of set up because as they're holding their cards yeah. in a card game, they tend to look away and get distracted yeah. and tip their cards. And so the parents can look and see what if it's Uno, they can, you can uh, see yeah. the color and you can like manipulate it so that you win. <laughs> Just to end it, because you got things to do, and then you you served your time, right? You helped, you played with your kids. But I mean, I, I guess are we missing the point? It seems like we're missing the point. Yes, because, but, or maybe what you could do is you could just say we'll go for a time limit. You could just you set could a that. timer, and our we have forty minutes for game time, and that might be a quarter of a shoots and ladder game, right? Because, you know, they run easily into the three hours. Now, what we do is we'll set a time limit, and then we'll, we'll also point out there's you can't get mad, you can't pout. Mm-hmm. This is the time we have to play. Because yeah. he's like all, all on board till you hit that time, and he's like, no, we can't stop. You know, he goes, no, hey. that's that. You know what else you do is you give your kid a Benadryl, <laughs> then you play the board game. Drug your children. It's another this way is, to do this it. This is the coach's uh, approach here today. Yeah. Um, also, they talk about here that uh, Hasbro created a new Monopoly version that encouraged cheating only in this case to win, right? So that's the whole point is you figure you're going to win. So prompted by the late 2017 survey of customers, Hasbro plans 
to create a cheater's version. It's out on the market right now, I believe. About half of the respondents admitted to duplicity while playing the real estate game. He goes, we were quite surprised it was that high, that there's that many people half cheating. Half of the says, people are cheating. So Mark and the executives from Hasbro. The, uh, the new edition will reward players who can, say, move a rival's piece without notice or collect rent of an opponent's property. Yeah. Like when you tell someone, oh, I own that, and they just give you rent, you're like, all right, and you get bonus points for cheating. Take that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A, a cheater's version. It seems like we're maybe missing the point of all of this. It used to be that you had nothing else to do, so you would play these games and they were just fun forever because you could talk and relate. Now it's like we play them because we feel like we should, but we're really trying to just get through it so we can get to what we really want to do, But Netflix. As a parent who has been stuck in the never-ending cycle of shoots and ladders or in Candyland where you get towards the end and you have like five or six spaces left – Right. And so you can truly only move if you get that color. Yeah. You draw that from the card. But then when you draw the mushroom, the, uh, I keep calling it mushrooms, but the uh, gummy bear or gummy drop. Yeah. And you have to drop like 40 spaces back. The game never ends. It, it is. And the, it's like, come on, let's just end this. Let's do something fast. That's why tic-tac-toe is good. Yeah. Because there's an end. Uh-huh. It just seems like the games are set up to never end. Connect but. four. Mm-hmm. That's a great game because that goes fast. Right. And you can lose really easily on that game. You just, you, just keep, you just keep, you know, not seeing the big mistakes. Wow. Okay. Parents, what are we doing to our kids for heaven's sakes? Maybe we ought to just find the joy in just being there, set some rules, set some time limits, and then I guess cheat. It's just what you got to do sometimes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. What a, what a difficult job. Can you imagine being the CEO of your company? Now, some of you would be like, oh, yeah, I would kill it. Kill it. But it's got to be a really difficult thing to make sure everyone's happy, everyone's got an opinion, everybody, you know, thinks they could lead the company better, and then your job is to actually get it done and meet with the board. And But, yeah, but you make so much money. Um it's interesting uh, when when Jim talked about the fact that the market is is what uh, pays pays these CEOs, um, and and you're paid. He said what you're worth, but what what he means by that is if I can go get millions of listeners to listen to a radio show, then um, and they're doing it because they want to listen to me, then we can afford to pay me more. I'm not like making an argument here for myself, by the way. Um, but the point is there's a market. And the the funny thing is some of the most important jobs in the world don't get paid by the market necessarily. Um, they don't necessarily – we don't pay our teachers based on the great insights that they gave their students to go allow them to go on and create Apple um, or to create Google. We didn't pay them for that. But we pay our CEOs based on – the marketplace, right? And so it's easy to get really offended and and frustrated by what CEOs are making. Um, and so – and there's no easy way through this. Some of the most important jobs when you think about it aren't even paid. I mean being a parent, you're not paid to be a parent. You're not paid to be uh, – you're not paid anything near what you'd be worth to be uh, that nurse that just is there for you and actually connected and relating to you. 
Think of anybody in a job or a profession that really has made a difference and uh, they're not probably being paid for all the social and the relational stuff that matters. So um, it's hard. It's hard when we look at a world where some CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars and you know other people that lead huge organizations of incredibly motivated, uplifted people aren't. And I guess in the end, we have to kind of be clear about what, what really matters and it doesn't mean you just can spread the money everywhere evenly either, right? Because there are market forces at play. But it also doesn't mean that we can't uh, find other ways to respect and hold these people up. There are some things in this world that you can only see with the heart. And uh, one of those is just the goodness of other people. And a lot of times you won't be compensated on earth for that goodness. I guess that's why it's worth believing in a heaven where you might be compensated there. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We have all of this nostalgia for music, and I, I really wonder what it's what it's about. It, it seems like deep, deep down, um, there's we many of us. I mean, maybe of the older generation, we want to get back to that good old fashioned day when you could leave your front door open, uh, you know, have the screen on, maybe put some vinyls on, and 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 get back and and just enjoy listening to some great music. Hmm? Or when you used to – like I used to go hang out at my grandparents' house and every – I think it was Sunday, we'd sit around the old uh, wood box television, like real nice wood furniture television set and we would watch Lawrence Welk. And we'd get to see a really nice variety show of dancing and champagne dreams, <laughs> bubbles everywhere. Ah. And I look at my kids and I, I, I think our earlier guests made a really excellent point that they're, um, they, they can look at these really incredible masterpieces, but it really is just like they're driving by a billboard. <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah, I saw that. Yep, yep. Nope. Saw that. Oh, had that experience. But I guess because we had fewer things going on, these things became more universal. They became more shared kind of collective events. And it might be telling us that there's something powerful in creating culture. And uh, personally, there's a lot I think we can do with our families. There's a lot we can do with our kids to create a feeling of culture like that. Kids want predictability. They want to know that we're going to have a certain uh, you know, predictable schedule in our lives. We're going to have a family meeting um, once a week, we're going like with us, our kids like to know that we're going to have a family prayer at the end of the day, something, just something that tells them that everything's okay. We're all fine. And even though they kind of moan when you're like, Hey, let's get together and have a family time. They, of course they're going to moan. That's what teenagers do, but they predictably get there and we then can have some great conversations. We can share some great stuff. So don't think just because, you know, Life is moving on. Great musicians are passing on. Um, that that this world isn't a great place. We just need to take the principles of things we used to do, like we need to sit around and have more talks. We need to have more family circles where we share more insight. We need to ask them to turn the the intervening technology off so that they can actually be present and start experiencing certain things. And slowly but surely, drip more and more opportunity, more culture, more connection into their lives. Family dinner is a great place to do that as well. So the research bears out that when you're having events like that, you're going to create stronger families, stronger kids, 
And that's the goal for all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we look at everyone else's lives, we might think to ourselves, man, why is everything in my life such a mess? We look at their bigger house, their nicer car and put together family, their family pictures, everyone's smiling and perfect. And then we put ourselves down for not being more like them. Their life looks so good, but hidden beneath the glossy exterior are probably credit card bills, student loans, car payments, and out of the control uh, mortgage. Everything doesn't always seem as it appears. Are we really living the lives we want or are we chasing someone else's dream just to keep up appearances on social media, at church, and in our community. Joining us is Rachel Cruz, author of the book, Love Your Life, Not Theirs. She's here today to uh, teach us about how to, to, uh, to manage our dreams, our, our goals, and our finances in a way that, uh, that might actually bring us some peace of mind. Rachel Cruz, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You bet. We love um, we love your your dad as well on the show. I always suggest to people that they go listen to Dave Ramsey. It's got to be it's got to be an interesting thing growing up in Dave Ramsey household um, <laughs> because there there is there's got to be a lot of pressure on you to to maybe struggle or have to go figure out how to love your life, not theirs. Yes, well, it's funny. I think people assume growing up as Dave Ramsey's kid that we had, like, mutual funds parties and, like, budget camps. And <laughs> Credit card cutting like parties, that. yeah. Yeah, yeah, where everything is, like, money-focused. And thankfully, that that's not the case. And Mom and Dad really did a good job balancing, you know, this idea of teaching us how money works, but letting us really figure it out and make our own mistakes, you know, really under their roof growing mm. up. And so for that, I really am thankful. But, yeah, that does not mean I'm, <laughs> I'm immune to money mistakes or the struggle of comparisons. And, right. You know, my the topic of my whole new book was is all about, you know, figuring out, okay, how do you love your life and not everyone else's? And it's something that I do, I struggle with, for sure. And so I think it's something a lot of people can relate. Yeah, and you've written two books. Uh, This is your second book, Love Your Life, Not Theirs, and then your other book was Smart Money, Smart Kids. It's it seems like comparison, uh, it's always there, it, and whether it's around money, but it, it seems like on social media and the impact of social media, it's so much more prevalent. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, keeping up with the Joneses 10 years ago, you actually had to see the Joneses in person right. to do that. You know, you had to see them at church or they're your neighbors, uh, where today we carry them around in our back pockets on our phones. And it can be very dangerous because what you put on social media most of the time is, is your best foot forward, right? It ends up being everyone's highlight reel. It's the vacations, right. the new cars, the great house. Uh, the going out to dinner, you know, that kind of thing. And so when you start comparing your life to that, you're really comparing your life to make-believe because not everyone's life is that perfect 24-7. And like you said kind of in the intro, it's true that you don't know what's behind that. You don't know the credit card bills that are following that vacation or you don't know the second mortgage that was taken out on the house to redo that kitchen. I mean, you, you know, you just don't know people's situations. And so you have to stop comparing yourself to make-believe. Mm. It seems like that as part of the premise of your book, uh, love your life, not theirs, you really have to know what your life is about. And, Absolutely. And many of us sure. don't spend that time to figure that out. That's right. And that's part of the, you know, the journey of this is, is you know, when I talk about money and the book is heavily focused on money, but money's never just about money. 
you know, it ends up being about your goals in life, your dreams, your fears, what you value. And the beautiful thing about life is you get to decide that. You get to decide, hey, what does our family value? What do we want to do with our lives? And you let money be a tool in order to get you there. But, yeah, you're exactly right where you have to figure out where are you going? You know, what are your goals in life? What do you want to be doing? And, again, letting money assist you in that. Mm. How, do we, how do we stop it? How do you stop the comparing and the comparison? Oh, gosh. It's an it's a uphill battle for yeah. sure. And it's, uh, it, it is difficult. But for me, one thing, you know, as I look at this, the comparison issue really is a heart issue. And when you, when you look at comparison, you know, it not only steals your joy, but it does end up stealing your paycheck because you do spend money that you may or may not have to try to keep up a lifestyle that you think everyone else is living and you're missing out on. And so it can be dangerous to our checking accounts, but also to our heart. And so really figuring out, okay, how do we really quit the comparisons? And for me, um, honestly, one word has, has helped me with this, and that's the word gratitude, mm. being grateful what you have, because in a heart that's filled with gratitude, there is no room for discontentment and comparisons. And so really focusing on that and laying that as a really strong foundation in your life, because out of gratitude really does come contentment, um, which is the heart issue of this. But, but it really is important to build that solid foundation so you can build other good money habits upon that. Talk about, because uh, you have a daughter, right? You have a dog. Yes. <laughs> you have yes. a husband. <laughs> I mean, in reality, it's if if I can love my life, that what that means is I love my spouse more, my child more, my dog more. I mean, this is about really being happy. It is, and, and it is all about you know figuring out. Okay, this is. This is the life that I have, and learning to be grateful for that. And no, not everything's perfect. Marriage right. isn't always perfect. You know, raising kids isn't always perfect. Um, but really, under you know, being content in the present and where you are, and look up and say, okay, the job I have, you know, the the relationship I'm in, uh, my pets, even you know, I mean, your kids, whatever it is in your life, to look and be like, you know what, I'm grateful for these things, and really learn to be content in it. And and contentment is not apathy or laziness. You can still be working hard and driving towards something and be content. But contentment really is a state of your heart where you're at peace and, and you really are uh, thankful for what you have right now in the present. And, and that is so key because people that are content, I believe, live more joyous lives. They have mm. better quality relationships. I mean, so much comes out of this part of our lives of contentment. So it is a key part of not only um, winning with money, but I think winning with life. So true. I mean, again, why would why would I ever be blessed with more if I'm not happy with what I've been given? Absolutely, that's exactly right. I guess that's so really that's it. Though that's, we, we we think we create it, and and many times, and we overlook the fact that a lot of this is just blessing. It's just good blessings. It is, and being able to manage those well, right? Um, you know, because if you can't manage the little, you're not going to be able to manage a lot. And part of my hope and 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 prayer for people is that they do win with money, and not just for the sake of just gaining a bunch of wealth, but to be able to help others and that outpouring uh, within your community and your family. And so uh, it's going to be hard to, to manage money well when you can't do it with, say, you have a little bit of money right now. If you're not managing that well, then you're not going to be able to manage a lot well either. And so really focusing on managing what you have in the present and doing that at the best of your ability. Mm. Give us some of your rules. I know you have seven money habits for living the life we want. What are uh, some of those habits? One of them is steering clear of debt, uh, which a lot of people cringe when I say this, but it, it is a reality that my friend Chris Hogan says that debt is a thief. 
it not only steals your income from you, but it steals your peace of mind. It mm. steals your sleep at night. And so what ends up happening is not only, you know, does it steal your paycheck, but gosh, you know, so much around you uh, that the stress and the worry are really heightened when debt is in the picture and you owe someone something. And so I'm a big believer in living within your means uh, and, and having that ability to say no to things in the present when you don't have the money, but to save up and, and to still have that as a goal and to get it later 100%, but not depending on the credit card or the car loan to get you through life because mm. Mathematically speaking, I mean, it is. It steals your income from you, and it's hard to build wealth when debt is a part of your life. Is there some debt that you're okay with, some debt that that actually pays off? A mortgage is the one type of debt I'm, I'm okay with. I won't yell at you for. Good, <laughs> but, good. But, I, but there are some perimeters around it. I mean, I, I like a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage. Make sure your, your uh, monthly payment is no more than 25% of your take-home pay. I mean, I do have some guidelines in place for that. But everything else from a car loan, credit cards, even student loans, yeah, I'm 100% against, which is very radical, I yeah. know. But I've just learned, you know, that, that the borrower is slave to the lender, it says in Proverbs. And I believe that, that when you owe someone something, your choices are limited, your options are limited, what to do with your money, because it's going right back out the door to Visa and MasterCard and Sally Mae. And, right. and to be able to, to say, gosh, if your income comes in and you get the option to choose what to do with all of it, that puts the power back in your hands to say, okay, I get to choose what to do with it. Whether I choose to spend it, invest it, give it away, but you're making that option in your life and your car payment isn't dictating that for you. Mm. Oh, it's so hard, isn't it? Because people want the car, they want the home. And I, I've even seen it with my kids. Want They want things that they don't even know how to earn. And I yeah. and it's like, first, let's learn to earn. Then let's learn to save. Then you can have the things. But it's almost we, we put it in reverse order. Yeah, and that's an important lesson for, for parents to hear because I think you're exactly right. Really starting to teach your kids the value of a dollar, which is kind of an old school principle. But gosh, all they see you is swiping that magic card that, you know, somehow gets you whatever you want is what they're seeing. And to be able to say, no, like we have to work for this and let them work and earn some money around the house and things. Because once they earn money, they, they give it differently, they save it differently, they spend it differently. And letting them go through that emotions, I mean, what a gift to give your six, seven, eight-year-old, 13-year-old while they're under your roof, that they're able to, to implement these principles. So when they go off on their own, they know what they're doing. And so, yeah, I think you're exactly right. There's a, a generation that I hope is not forgotten in this and that parents really will step in and teach their kids this. It's great uh, advice. Because, yeah. And, and as a parent, you know, with you winning with money and creating good money habits, my prayer is that you do have a legacy to pass on to your kids and you want them to not become the next reality TV star, right? And like right. know it all, uh, but to really handle it well and continue to change your family tree. Oh, such good advice. Let's take a break with you, Rachel. We'll be back. Um, I know we got to get you out by seven forty-five, so we'll we'll take a break. Come back, get some more money habits from Rachel Cruz and her book, "Love Your Life, Not Theirs: Seven Money Habits for Living the Life You Want." Powerful learning, folks. Money it's it's a major source of identity, but it also should be a uh, you know something that we're in control of, not chasing the rest of our lives. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The name of the book, Love Your Life, Not Theirs, Seven Money Habits for Living the Life You Want, uh, written by Rachel Cruz, who's joining us today. She's the daughter of Dave Ramsey, but the author of two books, and uh, she joined Ramsey Solutions in 2010. She, by the way, at the age of 15, spoke to 10,000-plus people in and, and began her speaking career. She's been at this a very, very long time, and we're so honored to have you on the on the show, Rachel. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. This is great. And it's cool mission, uh, really. You're, you you want to change lives. You want to educate families and and people to to love their life, uh, not just covet everyone else's life. What are some more money habits that we could be paying attention to? A really important one that a lot of people don't implement in their lives on a daily basis because it is it can be hard uh, is to make a plan for your money. And what that really is is a budget. Now, don't people probably are turning <laughs> off the radio now because I said the B word. <laughs> yeah. I know people cringe at it. But really, in order to win with money, you have to be intentional. You have to tell your money where to go. And so that's a budget is really planning out where is my money going to go. And I, and I recommend people doing a monthly budget before the month begins. So looking ahead and saying, you know, for December, for instance, which can be a little tricky because of Christmas and all that, but, but looking ahead and saying, okay, this is what we're going to make in December, and here is everything that we're going to spend money on in December, and giving every dollar a name, and really being focused and, and intentional about this, because it's so easy for people to go through their life, you know, and look up. Even now, you could look back on the last year or two of your life and be like, okay, I made X amount of money. Right. Where is it? You know, where did it all go? And, and it's so easy to go through life like that, and so... In order to win, though, and, and take control of your money and to get out of debt like we were talking about before and living debt-free, a budget has to be a part of your life. And you, and budget in marriage is, you know, in my world, that is the number one fight, right? So it's because it becomes a lot about power, control. We make accusations. How do we sit down and, and form that budget if we've never done it before? Well, as a couple, and, and you know this well, but the idea that opposites attract – and this is going to be true with your money. So one of you is probably a spender. One of you is probably a saver. One of you probably is going to enjoy doing a budget and feel <laughs> control and good. The other one is probably the free spirit that's like, oh, I don't want to do a budget. Uh, and my husband and I are that exact way. I'm actually the free spirit, which is funny that I talk about <laughs> money on a daily basis, but I am naturally a spender and not good at details. And he's the saver and more you know, militant about what we have. And so, yeah, it can, you're exactly right, it can be very tensioned. Um, in those meetings. But it's amazing that I found with couples, when you sit down and do a budget together and you're respectful and you say, okay, here's the money we have. Where do we want it to go? And you get to a point where you both agree. You both agree. You both have a say in this. And I don't care who makes the money and who doesn't. I mean, really saying we're equal partners in here and we're going to decide as a family, this is where our money's going. And, and doing that and at the end of that budget meeting, you know, shaking hands and saying, this is our contract for the month. Neither one of us are going to break it. This is what we're going to stick mm. to. Now, throughout the month, you can change it if you need to, if both spouses agree. But it's amazing. When you, when you agree on your money as a couple, the unity that cr- that's created uh, is undeniable. I mean, because, again, money's never just about money. You know, you're agreeing on your goals and your fears and your dreams. And so being one as a couple and doing that. I find a lot of people, they, they, they have the money fights and the arguments when there's not a budget in place because someone overspends or, you know, you look at the bank account and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, when did you go here? And it's like, well, <laughs> I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want you to be mad. You know, it's things end yeah. up really uh, escalating quickly. But when you can agree both on 
this is the plan, this is where our money's going. Your money fights and money and money arguments, they really do lower. And and Matt, I mean, again, you probably know all of this. You're you're an expert no, in no. these things. But but just the power of, of, of looking at the statistics across America that one of the leading causes of divorce yeah. in America today is money fights and money oh. problems. So this is crucial, crucial for couples. And it's it's it doesn't have to be destructive, like you're saying. It could be calm. I mean, at first it's scary, but once you've done it two, three, four times and you're unifying, like you're saying, you become one. You finally have a shared goal and a shared mission. I mean, and over time you could afford a vacation. Hey, and you could actually <laughs> go celebrate. So, I mean, it, it can be very positive. It can. And I think that you bring up a great point that it is a very vulnerable process if you've never done it because, you know, showing what you spend and why you spend it, I mean, it really, it, it can be very vulnerable. And so pushing through that awkwardness and those, and those hard conversations, push through, keep going, because after, you know, about three months of doing the budget, it's amazing how quick these budget meetings become because it's become a habit in your life. But you can't imagine living without it. And I'm saying that as a spender and a free spirit. So yeah. I, I know the feeling of not wanting to be on one. But I've really learned that a budget doesn't limit your freedom. A budget gives you freedom. It gives you permission to spend on your money on things that you want to spend on. And again, going back to, to the family dynamic and the couple, I mean, being able to agree on that together is huge. Talk about, um, Rachel, your your vision of um, somebody loving their life, not coveting everybody else's, not thinking that you have to have a boat because your neighbors have a boat or your friends have a boat. What in the end, because I know you, you are big into testimonials and you've seen thousands of lives changed by this. What have you seen it do, this, this paradigm shift of loving your own life? How has it shifted and changed people that you've worked with? For me, as I, as I talk to these these couples that have gone on this journey and they've really, you know, been focused on it, it's amazing how the how the comparison trap I think is is somewhat lifted. I think we'll you know we'll always kind of battle it because of social media and that kind of thing. But as I talk to them, they suddenly are less concerned about what everyone else is doing. And when you start winning with money, it's amazing that you really kind of stop caring what people think hmm. uh, because you make different decisions. And when it's your money that you're that you're spending, you know. It, it, sometimes you say, okay, maybe we don't want the new car because this thirty grand in the bank is kind of nice. Yeah. Let's maybe go on two vacations instead. You know, you get to pick and, and choose those things. And so there gets to a point where, where when you're going into debt, um, you know, you're, you're living so beyond your means that not only the stress and the worry is escalated, but you're really trying to keep up with a life, and it becomes exhausting for everyone in, in the situation. And so I see a lot of freedom um, a lot of, of just, you know, being able to breathe again um, instead of carrying around the burden of debt. And so I think that that's a, a huge testimony to people that um, not only do their relationships thrive, but I think their life in general, it's just, it feels like a breath of fresh air and instead of a weight that they're carrying around. Mm, love it. We've got about one minute to get you out. And then, so I want to know the one thing, Rachel, what is the one thing, if you only could tell everybody to go do one thing today, what is the one thing that would would most impact our ability to love our lives and not everyone else's? On the money side, I would say the budget. If you could do one thing right now, sit down and do a budget. We have an app called Every Dollar, and it's free. So download that. That'll kind of help kickstart you uh, on how to do your first budget. 
And and I would say that first and foremost, uh, mm-hmm. money-wise. And then number two, uh, if you're struggling with, with the comparison and the heart issues, start a gratitude list. This is something I do every morning. I just type down two things I'm grateful for. And let that be a habit in your life and start really focusing on the things in your life that, that you are thankful for um, because I think that contentment will come out of that. So, so practically speaking, the budget, but when it comes to your heart, start a gratitude list and write down two things every day that you're grateful for. Beautiful stuff. Rachel Cruz, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Amazing, uh, amazing mission that she's on. Go to rachelcruz.com. You can find all of her stuff on YouTube. Check her out on Facebook as well. And uh, go look on look for the book, Love Your Life, Not There, Seven Money Habits for Living the Life You Want. It can be there, folks. It can be there for all of us. And uh, sometimes it just takes a little bit of discipline. Rachel Cruz is her name. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. This music means Heather Ann Johnson's joining us. Hadge, we call her. She is um, a good friend of the show and a professor here at Brigham Young University where she teaches classes um, on how to keep your families active, how how to build a successful family, and she also has a wonderful website. If you go to familyvolley.com, is the place to be. She wrote the book Family Fun Fridays, and soon we'll be releasing books Family Fun Monday through Sunday, uh, skipping Friday because we've already got that back. We're already there. You're already there. We already did that. How are you, Heather? Good to have you here. It's good to be here. Thanks. Um, today, you're bringing up a very important issue, helping our children deal with disappointment. Yes, that's what we're talking about. A lot about. of them seem, a lot of people today I know. need some help getting through some disappointing times. It's true. And it's kind of interesting because when we look at this, you know, if we can't help our kids learn these skills when they're young, then we run into adults who don't know how to deal with disappointment. That's right. And we kind of see that right now. We're filled with it. Our our country's, you know, being laden with a lot of turmoil. And not just that, but a lot of adults who aren't quite sure how to channel, take care of, deal with being disappointed. Yeah. And so so we really have to learn those skills. And as parents, there's kind of two parts. There's this part where we have to teach them these skills so they have these skills long term. But then there's also in the moment, what do we do? Like Mm -hmm. when all of a sudden the kid, you know, fails the test or didn't get the part or didn't score the goal or law, what do we do? And that gets really tricky. But if we can focus on the need to help our children become responsible adults, we'll realize this is terribly valuable because disappointment never stops coming. Different forms, right? Sometimes it's little. Sometimes it's big, monumental. But unfortunately, until we die, there will be disappointment. It's not <laughs> There will going be disappointment. Away. It's not. And, and it's actually – it's essential. It, I mean we always think of it as bad. Right. But it's but not. It's not – it really is incredibly helpful. Absolutely. Because it has everybody looking – again, and I always look at it like a – this is a major pivot point even in the country – because, you know, half of the country felt this five or eight years ago, four years ago. The other half is now feeling it today. Right. And um, if if we could just learn, we could change. We could change this whole thing so we don't have to always hate the opposition. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. learn, you know, learn to deal with it. The, the stress and the turmoil that it brings us when we're unable to handle disappointment – 
really has long-term effects, right? right. That, that just continues to funnel into other areas of our lives. So we're going to start with our kids. We're going to start when they're very young. You know, kids taking temper tantrums in the store, they're disappointed. They wanted the candy. They didn't get it. And so they act out, right? It's unfortunately very similar to how adults right. sometimes right. act out. And so we want to start very young by teaching them these things, recognizing that the benefits of disappointment and learning to deal with it are huge. Our ability to compromise, our ability to work with others, our ability to ve- to develop those coping and social skills that we need. This is really important. Did you ever wake up Christmas morning and you didn't have what you wanted and you were disappointed? Sure. I'm sure we all have. So, I mean, that's like the first time I felt disappointment. Like, what? What in the world? That is is not on my list. What is Santa's deal? But it's it's so cool because I, I look at it. And so how do I how do I teach my kid? Where do we begin to teach them instead of just giving them the lecture like this is right. you wait. What do which, you do? Which we tend to do, yeah. right? Which we can get to kind of as we move through this. But the first thing we need to do is we've got to teach them that there are things we can control and there's things we can't control. There are some things that are out of our power. They just are. And so the need to lose emotion, sleep, stress, throw temper tantrums about things we can no longer control are a waste of our energy and effort. Mm. And so we want them to understand that there are a difference. Things, some things you can change, let's change them. Some things you can't, we've got to let those things Yeah, but go. mommy, you could buy me that right. thing. <laughs> right. You can change it. Just open your wallet, mom. It's true. And so when that happens, our response needs to be very clear. We look at our children and we acknowledge and say, I know you feel upset. Yeah. I know you feel disappointed. And then the next step you're going to take is you're going to ask them what they think can be done as a solution. Now, we're going to repeat this a couple times today as we chat, but it's really important that we always turn this back to our kids and ask them what could be done. What is a more effective solution to this problem? Because in order to learn to deal with disappointment, we have to recognize that there is not just one single Mm. path. There are other options. And the sooner we can get our children to recognize that there are other options in front of them, the sooner they can step back and say, okay, option A didn't work. It was my preference, not my favorite that I've got to go to B and C, but there are – They can. And there are other options. Mm. Let's explore those. So we've got to separate the can, can be changed from the cannot. The next thing we've got to understand is we need to be our children's guide and not their savior. It is not our job to step in and save them from every last disappointment that will face them. In fact, doing that is a huge disservice to our children. We've got to let them experience the ups and the downs so they learn to manage their setbacks. Now, the the solution, if we're looking for, you know, for lack of a better word to this, is really back to asking questions. It's going back to them and saying, what's something that we can do instead? Or what other ideas do you have concerning this situation? Or... What can we do next? Ask them. Allow them again to look for ways to solve their own problems. It seems like every time you ask them, you end up putting the focus back on them. Like part of the key to being able to adapt and deal with life is – it's you. Right. We so have to have the skills. how will you handle this? Right. How do you? You. It's exactly right. We have to have those skills. And so we want to make sure that we're doing this. Now, another thing we need to be careful with is we've got to be very careful with praise. Mm. As parents, we're very quick to praise the outcome. We need to stop and instead praise the effort. Mm. 
Mm. We've got to be praising the effort. We know, research shows us that we get confidence from overcoming the adversity, not from being told how great we are. Yeah. So we can walk around all day and tell our kids they're amazing. (laughs) It will do nothing for their esteem in the long run unless we're praising them and helping them overcome adversity. That's where their esteem is going to come from. Right, right. Um, There is a great study that I love that was done. They took about 400 fifth grade students and they gave them some puzzles to do. And when they looked at them, they split them up. And the first group of, of students, they were purely praised on their Essentially, their outcome, their intelligence, you are very smart, is the Mm. message they got. The other set of kids, the other 200 fifth graders, they were praised for the ability that they put forth, their work ethic, for the effort they put forth. After they were done, they gave the kids impossible puzzles, a new set. And when they gave those kids those puzzles, the children who had been praised for being smart did 20% worse. Mm. The children who were praised on their energy and effort did 30% better than they did the first time. That's a huge gap. It's a huge gap. So we've got one group that's not just staying the same but dramatically dropping and another group that didn't just stay the same but saw a huge increase. So take a step back and instead of praising the outcome, remember what happens then if the outcome's negative? We have nothing to say. You're you're a loser. (laughs) We got nothing. We got nothing. And so we've got to focus on that effort because the effort carries into every situation. Well, yeah. So think that through. If you you only praise your child for hitting the ball and being an athlete, then what happens when he has to finish a test that's hard? Right. Or he strikes out. And and it can be related or not. And so he gets back to that test and it's like, well, this didn't result in a home run. Did I fail? And so we've got to go back to the effort, always about the effort. The other thing we can do with our praise is not just avoid the outcome. We want effort and energy and then we want to go to skill. But we also want to make sure that they're recognizing that we are very specific. So instead of you're a great athlete, you are great at telling the difference between a ball and a strike and choosing the right, right. one to hit. Mm-hmm. Right? The more specific, the better. They can hone in on that. That's something they can duplicate. Mm-hmm. Right? If my parents you know, growing up are constantly telling me that I'm good and it's a specific thing, I can hold on to that and I can duplicate that yeah. process. If it's vague, it's like, well, good at school? Well, great. Well, how do I – how do you get good at school? I don't, I don't know how no, to duplicate right. that. Well, and if your intention – even if your intention is good to keep pointing out how beautiful your daughter is, right? it might be better in the long run for self-worth to point out every other strength, every other right. gift, every other insight, every character she – principle she lives, every character trait she Absolutely. Because we're going back again to that effort, right? Even if we look at beauty – and this happens with girls a lot. We run into this. We're constantly saying, you look so cute. Mm-hmm. You're so pretty. Well – that that's great, but that doesn't help yeah. me in everything no. else in life, right? But the fact that you have good hygiene or you take care of yourself or you keep your clothes clean, even those specifics help them moving more, forward right. more than just you're cute or you're and pretty. you're conscientious. You went the extra mile. You get up early. You're disciplined to stay healthy. It's exactly right, to make time for those power. things. That's cool. So we've got to do that. Another one I love and, again, shrouded by a ton of research that's been going on since I think like 1965, 1968, is the need to make sure that we teach them delayed gratification. We must do this. We must teach them that they can wait for things that they might want. There has to be this delayed gratification. It develops self-control, and we need that throughout our lives. Now, the the studies show us, and one we're probably very familiar with, I believe 1968, researchers went in and they did the study with four-year-old kids where they gave them the marshmallows. You're familiar with this. And the way it went is they had, I think, two or three marshmallows. If they wanted to eat them right away, they could have one marshmallow. If they waited until the 
Father Proctor came back into the room, they could have all the marshmallows. They didn't know it, but the wait was a 20-minute wait. Now, what we talk about that part of the research a lot, but here's what we don't talk about a lot. These people in the experiment, these kids, have still are still being followed. Mm-hmm. So we've got, what, Longitudinal 50, study of right, 50 plus 60 years, years yeah. on, under our belt. Here's what they're finding, which is the amazing part. The kids who were able to wait went on to attend better colleges, became more adept at coping with frustration and yeah. with stress. Now, on the flip side, the kids who couldn't wait were more likely to become bullies, have drug problems, and have faced those drug problems all the way into adulthood. Mm. Now, really interesting, but this is a longitudinal study where we're so quick to talk about and see all the memes and the videos about those cute little four-year-olds that want the marshmallow or don't. But when we look at that outcome, that is all about learning to delay that gratification. Disappointment happens. We need to understand how to embrace it and recognize that there is a longitudinal effect to what's going right. on here. Oh, yeah. To what's happening. That's great. So that's a really good one. A couple others we can we can throw in here. There is clearly a need for us to empathize with our children's disappointments. Oh, yeah. We must. Show that we feel. That we feel it. And so when something does go wrong and when something does happen, we need to be very quick to say – Man, I remember when when that happened to me. I felt lousy. That was miserable. Yeah. I remember that. You know, even little things. We have a daughter who who struggles with this a little bit more than our other kids. And, you know, she'll have a play date planned or we're expecting to go somewhere and something happens. And it's very comforting for her when I can say, I remember being in sixth grade and there was this one time I wanted to do that too. And I didn't get to. Right. And, and it was canceled also. And I can even just see in her eyes, her shoulders drop, the emotions come down where it's like, oh, she gets this. Mm-hmm. She gets what this feels like. Yeah. And you could even turn it back to her. So, and then, like you're saying, always ask the question. How do exactly you, how right. do you feel? And then that'll prime the pump a little bit. Oh, and it takes time. And it, it takes, takes time. a lot of, lot of work, a lot of work. And it takes us being very diligent. Again, anytime you wonder what to do, validate always validate first and then put it back in their control. That's right. Though, If you can just remember those two things, regardless of everything else today, that will get you in a really That's good place. That's great advice. Heather Johnson's her name. You can go to her website, familyvolley.com, and uh, find out her latest and greatest. She's quite a resource. We appreciate her being on the show. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning, where Cole Wissinger and I, and I'm Jeff Simpson, do our darndest to shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. And, you know, we realize that as parents and as children, you have so many choices of what to watch, ways to be entertained, and you want to make sure that it's all good, right? And so we're going to help you do that. Unfortunately, we start our show off today with some sad news and some even sadder news. The first bit of sad news is that fans of the director Danny Boyle, Cole, list some of the films that Danny Boyle has directed. James Bond. James Uh, Bond. And James Bond? No, no, and no. He did Slumdog Millionaire Uh, was one of them. Okay. He's done done films that have been really popular, and he's got a very different kind of directing style – did he do the one with the James Franco hundred and something hours? Hundred and twenty seven. I think would be he the did. Movie. I'm not sure. You're gonna have Can't to look confirm. that up. But he was going to be directing a James Bond movie. Uh, Here's the sad news. That is no longer the case. He has backed out 
due to creative differences. That is terrible. That's so sad. Are the creative differences who James Bond will be? No, I don't think so because, I mean, James – Daniel Craig had already signed to come back. So I don't think he had an issue with that. We've got him for one more movie. Right. This is going to be his last one. Um, And then the other bit of sad news that's even more sad is the actress Barbara Harris has passed away at 83. Now, if you're not familiar with Barbara Harris – She was an Academy Award winning – no, I'm sorry, Academy Award nominated actress who if you see her in certain films, you would think she is a dead ringer for Madeline Kahn, another Academy Award nominated actress who was in a ton of Mel Brooks films and uh, Peter Bogdanovich films. But we're not talking about Madeline Kahn. We're talking about Barbara Harris who you may recognize – from the film, the original Freaky Friday with Jodie Foster. And the reason we specifically bring that movie up is because we are going to be talking about it later on here on Screen Cleaning. And the reason for that, Cole? We're going back to school, Jeffrey. I would love to go back to school. I, I just asked back my Back to wa- elementary school or like back so, to do a graduate program or something that normal people do? I, I, I'm so jealous of my kids right now. I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. My six-year-old is in first grade. And I turned to my wife and I was like, oh, don't you wish you could go back? And she's like, to elementary school? I said, yeah. Uh, no. I don't get it. Come on. It's, I'm it at was a point an eight-hour day to just sit there and do work. You get recess. You get lunch. Yeah. Here's the thing. That you had to pay too much for for terrible cafeteria food. Come on. We didn't do the cafeteria food. But here's the thing. So you can just pack your own lunch here too, Jeffrey. I'm at an age where I know all the answers to all those questions. And I'm so good at that work that I would just want to go back and smoke them all away. You know, just – This just in – Jeffrey Simpson does read at a first grade level. He would be able to pass – I, I, I read at least at a first grade level. Um, no, I love love to read whenever I have the opportunity. But when we return, we are going to be giving you some ideas, not only ideas for films that you can watch that have that theme of back to school, but also that raise some really important questions that you can have some really important conversations with your children as you watch these films. That's up next here on Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is our special back-to-school edition, and Cole and I are super excited. Even though we ourselves are not going back to school, I don't know, maybe someday in the future, but uh, we're going to be discussing films that feature uh, people going back to school and not always in the way you think. You know, you think of people going back to school either to continue their education or going back after a a, a fun summer Not always the case. We have several different categories for going back to school in the movies, and we're going to cover five of them here on the show today. But it's very fitting that our first category be going to school for the first 
time. So the new kid in class. Technically, it's not going back to school because they're going to the school uh, for the first time. But we've got a couple of films here that we're pretty passionate about. Uh, I'm, I'm at least passionate, uh, passionate about one of them. And the film I want to talk about first is Wonder. This was a big hit when it came out uh, last year. This is a film that, you know, was never going to win any awards or things like that, although it was nominated for Best Makeup. And based on an award-winning novel, though, for middle-grade audiences. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it was a film that had such a positive message that the word of mouth was amazing and it made a ton of money. And rightly so, because it does have a positive message. It's the story of this young boy who has these facial deformities as the result of all these surgeries that he's had over his short life. And it tells this story from three different perspectives. You get it from his perspective, you get it from his sister's perspective, and you get it from one of his friend's perspectives. I really enjoy actually the sister's perspective of this story because you you get to see the effects on her life of having a brother that has these deformities that that people make fun of, that people, you know, refuse to look at him in the face. And, you know, sometimes her parents forget that she's around. They forget that she's a normal teenager that has normal teenager issues. And some of the issues that she experiences are that she goes to school and the person who was her best friend for her entire life is now hanging out with a new crowd that might be uh, considered a little more popular. So there are some pretty big issues in this movie, not just uh, from the perspective of somebody who has deformities and how that has an impact on his life, although there's certainly plenty to talk about in those regards, too, with bullying and trying to treat everybody the same, but also in the way not just not being mean to people, but not, you know— not pandering or not treating people like they're not very smart just because of, of an outward deformity that they have. I love the scene in the movie where the bully in the movie is asking him, "Oh, do you know what you do? You know what an eraser is?" And the kid, the kid just totally shows him up and shows how much smarter he is than the bully. I love that, and it's a really great film to watch with your kids and to have a lot of these discussion topics. We watched it with our four and six year old, and it's just a really entertaining, fun film, and it told in a unique way. Like I said, with the three different perspectives, but it gives you an idea of what it's like for somebody who's never been to a public school before to go for the first time and some of the challenges that they run into. So from a storytelling perspective, I really enjoy that because when you're the new kid in a school, you already feel different. And so your movie takes a kid that is that looks very different even more so than just being the new kid and makes them deal with all of that. Um, the movie I want to talk about does a similar theme, just slightly different. I want to talk about Sky High, which mm -hmm. is a superhero story of a superhero high school where a bunch of kids of superheroes are testing out their powers for the first time as they manifest as they go to high school. But our hero has not had his powers come out yet. And so he's mm. a new kid to a school, but he's also a little bit different as well. 
And so it's interesting that both of these movies, while they're examining what it means to be new and and how that can kind of lead to some bullying and some feelings of being an outcast, it also – both of them amplify that by making the heroes of the stories different in additional ways that they have to deal with apart from just the school aspect that everyone else has to deal with. Most people going back to school don't have the physical deformities of Augie and Wonder or don't have a lack of superpowers like Will Stronghold and Sky High, but they are dealing with being a new kid. And so this is how movies can kind of show us in a really obvious way the challenges that everyone has to deal with, even not in the exact ways. And I'm really glad you brought this film up, Cole, not just because my kids ask for it all the time. They really love this movie. Because it's fantastic. It's a perfect movie. It's also about expectations, too. I am the youngest child of seven kids. And so by the time I got to high school, all of the teachers that I had had all of my older siblings. Oh, another Simpson. And so, yeah, there were these expectations. And depending on, you know, which child for my family they associated me with, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. But for the most part... They thought, oh, I should expect good things from from this kid because the Simpsons – I've had all of the Simpsons and they've been good kids. So, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because the Kurt Russell character is kind of the main superhero of the movie. He and his wife are this of great world, duo. Yeah. Right, of the world. And they're always solving the world's problems. And so, OK, here's Will Stronghold. He's going to have these amazing powers. He's going to do these great things. And at first, people are kind of underwhelmed because – He doesn't know what they are yet, like you said. And at the end, it's a movie for kids in high school, but because the final line of the whole thing tells a story that that any high schooler can relate to where he says – who would have known that my best friend would become my girlfriend, my girlfriend would become my arch enemy, and my arch enemy would become my best friend? Right. hey – that's high school. Like, it's just such a simple high school movie that's constructed so well and tells deeper stories if you want to look at it. I love uh, both of these movies. Sure. And, you know, one more takeaway from from Sky High is that kids should be given the opportunity to kind of come into their own and to not have to live on, in somebody else's shadow. So hopefully kids are given that opportunity in schools these days. I don't know. <laughs> Cole, there are a lot of other movies that we could have talked about in this first category of of going to school for the first time. One that came to my mind was The Karate Kid when he moves across the country and is bullied there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he's got to deal with a lot of those new kid issues. So our next category is going back to school with your kid. Now, this is a really interesting category because it brings up all sorts of issues, obviously, that you could talk to your kids about. The first one being Life of the Party, which is just what was uh, it was recently released on DVD and I had the opportunity to see it. I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I've kind of been burnt out on Melissa McCarthy, as I think most people have, which I think is why it got such bad critic and audience ratings. But it made me laugh. It was probably too long. But while I was watching it, it made me think about my relationship with my mom. So if you're not familiar, first of all, with the the plot of Life of the Party, the very beginning of the film, Melissa McCarthy and her husband are dropping their only daughter off for her senior year of college. And 
before they even get home, in fact, right after they get back in the car, before they've even pulled away from the school, the husband says, I want a divorce. And, of course, M- Melissa McCarthy, you know, it's 20-plus years of marriage. It, mm-hmm. it breaks her world apart, right? And the way that he presents it to her is very callous and and hurtful. Um, she decides, you know what? I was this close to getting my uh, archaeology degree. I had one year left, and because we had this child, I wasn't able to do it. So she decides she's going to go back to school. And, of course, she chooses to go back to the same school that her daughter is currently attending. And so that presents some issues right off the bat. But to her daughter's credit, she actually uh, welcomes her with open arms eventually. And, you know, she's in this fraternity with her daughter. So there's a lot of partying going on, which is why it's a pretty strong PG-13 Um, But it made me think about my relationship with my mom, because I think at one point or another, most kids could admit to being embarrassed by their association with their parents. Your old lame parents. Right. You know, and one one instance I can think of is when my mom dropped me off at college. It wasn't my first time at college, but it was my first time going away for college. And we were shopping together in Walmart, and I was on one aisle. She was on another aisle looking for something else. And she was trying to get my attention. And this was back before I even had a cell phone and before she had a cell phone. And so how did she do that? Jeffrey! Jeffrey! And I was mortified. And, yeah. It sounds slightly worse than even going up to the PA system and having them have to announce, (laughs) Jeffrey Simpson, your mother is waiting for you in the underwear aisle. Jeffrey Simpson. Right. But, you know... I, I got over that pretty quickly. I don't hold that over my mom. I barely remember it. But it's interesting because watching this movie and, and reflecting back upon my relationship with my mother, there are times when I was embarrassed by by something she did or because she had to go to a school event with me. And I look back on those and I, I wonder, why? Why on earth was I so embarrassed? Everybody's got a mom. Everybody loves their mom. So why is it why is there this fear of you know I'm not going to be cool if I'm seen with my mom. My mom is super cool. She is the life of the party. She's very outgoing, she's very fun loving, she's very accepting and welcoming. And I don't know why I ever felt embarrassed by that. It's because when you are young, the lamest thing that anyone could do is care about something passionately. <laughs> the, when you're cool in high school, it means that you're just, ah, whatever. And parents care so much. The movie that I watched that fits this criteria is an extremely goofy movie. Aha. Uh-huh. And Mr. Goof, our hero Goofy, the father of Max just cares so much about his son and isn't afraid to show it where Max wants to be this cool skateboarding kid that just wants to say whatever, you know, I'm doing my own thing. And so it's it's Goofy's passion for his son that really becomes overbearing and that's what causes the conflict in this one. I have seen portions of an extremely goofy movie. So good. Uh, I don't know that my kids like it as much as they do Sky High. But uh, it's probably, whenever they watch it, it's probably one that my wife has turned on for them. Um, One other thing I will say is that I I really, so the thing I appreciated most about Life of the Party 
is how accepting her daughter was of her mother. And to be fair, it's at a it's at an, a later age where it's not people aren't as worried about being seen as cool or not cool. And I I really love how accepting people were of her mother. Even within the fraternity, she makes a huge impact on her. M- Melissa McCarthy has a roommate. She's like this really um, introverted person who never leaves the room. She like doesn't open the blinds so the sun never comes in. And then you find out later on in the movie that she happens to be related to Christina Aguilera, who just happens to make a last minute uh, appearance at this party. Anyway, it gets a little ridiculous at, when it brings things up like that. But I liked it more than I thought I would. And I'm so grateful that it made me look back upon my my memories of my mother and appreciate her a lot more than I did maybe at the time. That's what that's what both of these movies kind of go for in a weird kind of appreciation way um, of seeing what it's like to go to school with your parents. An honorable mention could be Back to the Future. That's where right. Michael J. Fox gets to go to school with his dad and mom, but not in like the embarrassed, oh, these old people are here with me, but in a he went back in time to see what they were like. And had to kiss his mom. Right. And <laughs> Goofy Movie ends with a concert. Christina Aguilera ends Life of the Party with a, with a concert. Yep. And Back to the Future also ends with a concert. So if this is what you're doing, that's the formula. The, that's the format that you have to follow. You've cracked the formula. And- you know, even in the other film that really, I think, sparked this whole conversation to begin with and does feature a dad going back to school with his son called Back to School, that also features a musical performance of Twist and Shout sung by Rodney Dangerfield himself. That film is also PG-13, but be ye warned, it is 80s PG-13, and that's all we'll say about yes. that. So that is our second category, uh, going back with your kid. Now, before we go to our break, we want to introduce one more category, which is going back as your kid. Hmm. Now, this is a film, as as far as like going back to school, has probably the most, has the most to choose from, right? But somehow we zeroed in on a couple of films that we're going to talk about I am going to choose a film that has been done to death. Well, I chose it for you because you had never seen this before, Jeffrey. Well, I probably saw portions of it when I was a kid. And if I did see it in its entirety, it was as a kid. Cause but I, you still haven't seen the Far Superior remake. I, I, I don't doubt it's Far Superior. <laughs> um, so I knew that Jodie Foster was in it. Okay, And we're talking, of course, about... Freaky Friday. We're in the body swap portion of the program. Right. And this, even in 1976, was not an original idea. I found out later on that another film, the film that you're going to talk about, was actually a book from like the 1800s. And then it had been made into a film several times before it got to the film that you're going to talk about. So Freaky Friday involves this mother and daughter who think that life is so hard you know, the mother just ha- does all these chores and nobody really appreciates her. And the daughter has is just running from one thing to the next at school. And she's got to deal with all these boy issues. And she's also kind of a tomboy. And so it just so happens at the same time, they say, I wish 
I could switch places. There's no like magical ball or crystal or anything that allows this to happen. It kind of just inexplicably happens as Jodie Foster is sitting in an ice cream parlor and as her mom is sitting in the kitchen or in the laundry room. And so they switch places or the consciousness of Jodie Foster goes into her mother's body and the consciousness of the mother goes in who's played wonderfully by Barbara Harris, goes into the body of Jodie Foster's character. So hilarity ensues, and you get to see the mom in Jodie Foster's body trying to play field hockey and try to operate an electric typewriter. So things that are still very relevant today, yes, uh, I, using using a washer with an agitator in it. All the things that I do in my daily life. Things that you can you can relate to. And then you get to see uh, Jodie Foster in Barbara Harris's body playing baseball and having to do all these errands. And for some reason, all these people that they've hired out to do work in their home, like the gardener and the painter and the window washers and the dog walker, they all show up at the same exact time to really show you how difficult the mom has it, even though that would never happen in real life where all these hired people come at the same time. Well, it's probably because she forgot to schedule them because now it's Jodie Foster. The real mom would have scheduled it properly and wouldn't have had that problem. So you also get to see uh, Jodie Foster struggle with how to, like, oh, what's a checkbook? How do I write a check? Uh, So really, really relatable things, as we mentioned. What I like about this film is that... Uh, first of all, the acting is actually quite good. Jodie Foster is great playing an adult because I think she was kind of born mature. And Barbara Harris is fantastic playing this kid who looks like she's having a great time. She is a dead ringer for Madeline Kahn. I don't know if you're familiar with Madeline Kahn. From Clue and a few um, Mel Brooks movie fame. She is hilarious. But this is not Madeline Kahn. This is Barbara Harris, who is equally as funny in this role. But uh, she does have one of the creepier scenes in the movie where Jodie Foster's boy crush comes over. And so you get to see Barbara Harris flirting with this boy as Barbara Harris. Oh, that is a staple of the body swap Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. we're going to come back to this film in here uh, uh, just in a second, but I want you to talk about your film, another 80s classic. Well, this is not uh, – Freaky Friday was not 80s, but this movie is from the 80s. Freaky Friday preceded it, and then yes. right towards the mid to late 80s, we had a resurgence of the body swap movie <laughs> where every year some new one was coming out, and then it kind of hit a lull again before the Freaky Friday remake in the year 2000. I want to talk about Vice Versa starring Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage. Great cast. Little, little right Freddy Savage. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that I think is interesting now, it follows the same exact premise. The son doesn't appreciate what his dad does. Dad doesn't appreciate what his son does. I think Fred Savage is a little younger portraying than Jodie Foster. Um, yeah. Judge Reinhold doesn't have to go back to high school. He has to go back to early middle school, which – as Wonder showed us, middle school can be even rougher sometimes. So there's a film called Middle School, Worst Years of My Life. That is a perfect description it's of terrifying. middle school. It's yeah. I've seen a lot of horror movies in my day, but middle school movies scare me to death. Vice versa, though, is interesting as opposed to Freaky Friday because it's a dad and a son. Freaky Friday is a mom and a daughter. And I think both of these show off how sometimes little boys get along with their moms better and little girls can can get along with their dads. 
But both of these movies show the dynamic of getting along with that parent that you'll probably be someday and kind of gives them a heavier appreciation for what each other does. And this one does feature some magical object. It is a skull from the Orient that they touch at the same time and say, I wish I could switch places with you for just for one day or whatever it is. Yeah, it's not. It's a fortune cookie in the later Freaky Friday one. It can be all kinds of things that persuade in the community uh, spoof of body swap movies. It is a DVD copy of Freaky Friday that they touch and swap bodies. With. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because uh, when in both Freaky Friday and vice versa, when the adult and the kids switch places, I I wish that I would have seen the actors acting more like the their counterpart actually acted instead of like what a caricature of that age group was. Yeah, Judge Reinhold does a good kid impression. He's so likable in that movie. He's really but it's not so much what Fred Savage was doing, it's just Judge Reinhold as a kid. Right. And then when the kid is speaking as an adult, all of a sudden they're speaking using all these big words which aren't really too much in keeping with how the adult was speaking before they swapped bodies. But all of the leads in these films are are likable and enjoyable in their own right. I actually prefer vice versa to the original Freaky Friday. But um, if we didn't have Freaky Friday, who knows? We may not have had vice versa. Now, other or films, 18 again or oh, 17 sure. again or the other Freaky Friday right. or like Father Like Son. I was surprised or... at how many I stumbled across <laughs> as I was studying this. And uh, I shouldn't say steady because I don't want to give off the impression that I spent too much time on this. But it's interesting. A lot of people compare this movie to Big because they both came out the same year. However, Vice Versa came out first, came out before Big. There you go. Yes. So I mentioned I was going to circle back to Freaky Friday. And as we go to break, I thought it would be interesting to get a little bit more of a modern perspective on what it would be like for a mother and a daughter to switch places. And so I interviewed a couple of experts on this very subject, and let's hear what they have to say. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about what it's like to be a kid and what you think it's like to be an adult. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> what kinds of things do you girls do on a daily basis? We mostly um, go outside and play magments, coloring, and we build forts. I like to ride my bike with my sister. So it sounds like you have a lot of fun every day, right? Yeah. What kinds of things do you see your mom do? Clean the kitchen and make breakfast. She cleans. She makes her bed. She does her makeup. So it sounds like you girls get to play all day and she has to work all day. No, we work sometimes. Do you think you have a harder life or do you think mommy has a harder life? Mommy has a harder life. Because she has to do mostly lots of cleaning more than us. Because they have to do... Hard stuff for the kids. What do you think it would be like to switch places with your mom? It would be so scary because I would have to drive a car. If we told you that you had to switch with your mom, 
What kinds of things would you want to do that maybe you can't or don't do as a kid? I wouldn't want to、um, do so much chores. I wouldn't want to change your baby's bum.、Mm, do the dishes. You want to do the dishes?、Mm -hmm. I wish I would have known this all along. I would have been having you do the dishes every day. <laughs> would you rather be a kid or an adult? A kid. A kid. So I can play. What is one thing that you would say to your mommy if she were here with us right now? I would say I love you, mommy. Oh, back to school, back to school to prove to dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. Oh, back to school! Welcome back, back to, to Screen、school. Cleaning, and this is our very special back to school edition, as you can hear from that clip from Billy Madison, a film that Cole said he doesn't think he laughed once during his viewing. I'm sorry, I. I did not grow up with Adam Sandler a part of my life like you did, Jeffrey. Sounds like you need to go back to comedy school. Ooh, <laughs> sorry, that was a low blow <laughs> for a movie that is kind of low brow. Anyway, I particularly enjoy it, but that's me, and I happen to think it's one of his three good movies. Before the break, we mentioned going back to school or going to school for the first time. We talked about going back with your kid. And we talked about movies that feature going back as your kid,、uh, Freaky Friday, and vice versa with Judge Reinhold. What a great name! I could say that name all the do long day. I think that's、day. part of the reason why we decided to cover that movie is so you could say Judge Reinhold. Judge Reinhold. <laughs> and I love this is a little side note, but、uh, if you want a great role from Judge Reinhold. Take a look at Arrested Development, where you get to see Judge Reinhold as a judge, the Honorable Judge Reinhold, in a reality show that he they put on. It's very funny. Yes. Now we're going to be talking about going back to school as an adult, and the reason that it's just as an adult is because we decided not to make、uh, undercover back to school its own category. Although my pick does feature. An adult going back to school in an undercover capacity, and there are very various reasons for doing that, as we've learned from the movies.、Uh, the reason that my protagonist goes back to school undercover is because he is a witness to a crime. He's a stockbroker, and he's got two other friends that are going to be testifying against this client, and. They are both killed. So he, as he's being pursued, decides I'm going to look up my aunt and my cousin, and then he decides to go back to school as this skunk-haired, hip kid. This is in the '80s, mind you. I think it was '87. Okay. And you know, the funny thing is, while we were watching it, my wife and I were saying he looks just as old as the other kids. Which is good because some of these other movies that that we could talk about aren't as believable, but he was just as believable as an as a high school senior in high school as some of these other kids. Now, the film is called Hiding Out, 
Right off the bat, I'm going to say that this movie should have stayed hidden. It's a movie you have to dig a little deeper for, and it's, you know how you're digging through the garbage. I don't personally dig through the garbage, but sometimes- You know how you do. You misplace something, mm-hmm. or you're you're thinking, maybe if I have to dig it through the garbage, maybe there's something in here that's a, a little golden nugget that I could put in my pocket and save for later. I don't dig through the trash. I want to make sure that that's uh, said once again. But if you did have to- this is one – this is like the rotten apple core that you throw off to the side that's not going to do you any good. We make an effort in screen cleaning – you can't say we don't try – to find movies that everyone's not just talking about and see if they're uh, worth talking about. And sometimes they really are and other times they're not. Right. And this is not. Yeah. This is nothing that you will see in our panning for good segment. But there were some interesting things that could be brought up, like the impact that an older person could have on people younger than him. He immediately becomes very popular uh, because he questions his history teacher. And from then on out, kids like him. They gravitate toward him. They want him to run for office. In fact, they start his campaign for him, and the whole time he's like, I'm not running. I have no interest in that. I don't want to do it. I'm just going to walk away from this. But, you know, he uh, – it doesn't – despite his best efforts, he can't get out of this race. But I kind of want to talk about that scene about the kid questioning his teacher. It was, the, the, the scene is kind of – the scene in question is kind of an exaggerated – portrayal of a teacher who is a know-it-all who, you know, she basically says in the scene, I don't care about the truth. I care about like what I see as the truth. And she gives this loving portrayal, paints this loving picture of President Nixon. And he is sitting in his seat saying, "Uh, actually, he resigned in disgrace. He's not somebody that, you know, we should be looking up to. And because he questioned her, She just goes off the rails, and it just so happens that she's on the head of the committee that decides who wins the election Mm. or who tabulates the votes, I should say. And so it's interesting because I I think there is some value in questioning the things that you hear, depending on, you know, the perspective in which you're hearing it. But I don't necessarily agree with, you know, anarchy, which is something that she accuses him of. Um, But I I do feel like there is some value in questioning the things that you are presented because teachers are going to have opinions just like anybody else. It just so happens that they happen to share their opinions in a teaching capacity, which could be dangerous. But – This isn't to say anything against teachers or to discredit them or to say that they're out to hurt our kids. I don't believe that at all. But I do feel like sometimes things that children hear from adults might need to be taken with a grain of salt. What do you think about that, Cole? I think that the movie that I watched also has a little scene where our main character is questioning what the teacher is telling him, questioning the motives of a little red dog in his kindergarten class when Billy Madison ah. is sitting there and everyone else falls asleep and he brings his adult opinion to this um, first grade level picture book. <laughs> okay. And so- it's very funny. It's not – it's not done with any kind of serious saying something in mind. Now, wait a minute. You said you didn't laugh once it's during this movie. S- 
Sorry, when I say it's very funny, <laughs> it's supposed to be funny. Supposed to be funny. Okay. Um, what I like about this movie is it gives you a taste of what it might be like to go back to school as an adult and redo all of these grades over again. And they do it. It's it's kind of a funny premise because he has to go back to school in order to to become the heir of his father's hospitality business. So the concept for everyone like me that hadn't seen it before this week is right. that Adam Sandler is this adult man-child, as he is in every movie, that his father is very rich and paid his teachers off all the way through school. And Adam Sandler finds this out and says, no, I can do school. I can prove to you that I'm worthy of, of taking over your um, estate, your business, as you're talking about. Uh, and so he goes back and gets two weeks for each class. Um, and so this 30-something-year-old man is in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, which is his favorite, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, et cetera. You know, it's interesting. We recently did uh, an episode about if we could have recast or or given this movie to a different director. I'm curious to know because you mentioned that, you know, you're not – a big fan of Adam Sandler in this movie. Who would you have liked to have seen in this role? Well, the <laughs> I'm not an Adam Sandler fan, but I am a fan of dumb comedy, and Will Ferrell is normally at the starring role of the dumb comedies that I enjoy. I think seeing six, three, whatever goofy-looking Will Ferrell have to interact with kids in almost the same exact premise, I would probably like more just because I lean towards his comedy. I might take issue with that choice just a little because... You need somebody that can be funny, but that can also be a bit of a jerk, you know? And I I think Will Ferrell is certainly more likable than Adam Sandler. But the the moment, the only moment I think that I really enjoyed in Billy Madison is when he's on the field trip with these kids and one of his little buddies, he pees his pants. And so Adam Sandler runs over to to a water well. They're on a field trip to some old timey thing. And he splashes some water on his pants and comes and tries to convince the rest of the kids, it's cool to pee your pants. And then that other kid gets to turn around and he gets to be cool like Adam Sandler because he peed his pants too. And it's just, that's the genuine moment. That's the cool thing. Thing where you realize, oh, Adam Sandler's not this weird jerk man-child. He can have the childlike innocence as well as the childish antics. Uh, we should mention some honorable this mentions the, for this category. This is the category that comes with the most honorable mentions as well. Well, in the ter- in terms of uh, undercover going back to school, you've got, of course, Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger going undercover as a kindergarten teacher. It's always funny to see really, really big dudes interact with really, really small children. Right. Which is also the funny premise behind The Pacifier, which isn't built around the school aspect, but Vin Diesel does have to conduct the school production of The Sound of Music for one of the kids that he's taking care of. And to a much lesser degree, and I emphasize much, I'm not a huge fan of this film, you could mention... Never Been Kissed with Drew Barrymore and uh, David Arquette. And uh, that one is not as good as Kindergarten Cop, let's just say. But if you're looking for an undercover high school movie, it's certainly better than Hiding Out, which, as I mentioned, needed to remain hidden. And in just the generic normal adults going back to school, you also have Larry Crown, Educating Rita, High Time, and then... Night School with Kevin Hart will be coming out shortly. 
We can That's check true. that out as well. That's true. If you're a fan of Kevin Hart, I'm sure it's going to be exactly pretty much what in... you think you're going to get. Yes. So in our last category, this is going back as a teacher. Now, this is a really interesting category because it made me think of a really important question surrounding this discussion. So first, let's mention what the movies are. Cole, what was your movie? I went back and watched The Dead Poets Society with teacher Mr. Robin Williams. That's right. One of my favorites, but not one of Cole's favorites. Uh, why, why are we talking about Dead Poets Society in the going back as a teacher? So new teachers to a new school is the theme in both of them. And Robin Williams is bringing his normal Robin Williams free-thinking antics to a very stuffy academic place. Um, which is a thread in yours as well. But, and it's the school that he happened to go to when he was in school. That he graduated from, yeah. yeah. And so he gets to go back and he teaches an English class and the kids in his English class stumble upon his old yearbook that says that Robin Williams used to be a part of the Dead Poets Society. They ask him about it. He tells them about it. And then they start their own Dead Poets Society and then sad things happen and it ends with a nice slow clap kind of moment. And yay. Oh, Captain, my captain. Yeah. I'm surprised I like this movie so much considering I don't like poetry at all. And I <laughs> Poetry don't, plays a, a small part. Don't necessarily like the notion of being dead either. Anyway, that was yours. Mine, the film that I watched or the film that I'm talking about is another – It's it almost could have been in the undercover category as well. Because uh, it stars Jack Black, who has been kicked out of his rock and roll band, doesn't have enough money to pay the rent, and his roommate— And the rent is way past due. Right. He is roommates with a substitute teacher, portrayed by Mike White, who also happened to write the movie School of Rock. And one day, his uh, roommate is out, and Jack Black's character gets— a phone call asking for Mr. Schneebly, which is his roommate's name. And he's like, oh, he's not here. Oh, really? Because we need him for the substitute teacher job and it pays X amount of dollars a week. And the light bulb goes off in his head. Why don't I pretend to be Ed Schneebly? And he changes his voice over the phone very quickly, shows up, decides I'm going to be the substitute teacher and I'm just going to sit here and do nothing and let the kids learn on their own. While the money comes in, he finds out very quickly, wait a second, these kids are actually quite talented when it comes to music. I got kicked out of my band. There's this big band competition coming up. Why don't I recruit all these kids in the in the guise of learning to create this band with me so that I can compete in this competition and and win this prize and you know, be able to pay my rent and not have to be a substitute teacher anymore, probably. And so somehow the antics in this movie are, are a little uh, over the top, but, and, you know, you can't really believe them, but a lot of these movies with these high concepts aren't all that believable, but it's very likable because you give an actor like Jack Black, who is very good at overacting, you let him do the one thing that he loves in the world, which is be a part of music, music, to play the guitar, to sing, and he's very good at it. Take one thing that somebody's very good at it and the one thing that they love and let them just run wild with it. 
you are going to have a very entertaining film that features quite a few good rock songs. I'm sure uh, Don Shaline is a big fan of this movie. And for a PG-13 movie, it is surprisingly tame. I almost feel good about showing this to my four- and six-year-old. It's that tame of a PG-13 movie. Uh, A lot of good messages could be gleaned from this movie. Again, going back to that idea of, as an adult, you can have a really positive impact on kids. Now, he kind of has a roundabout way of having a positive impact on these kids, you know, because they they lie and they and they do some other shady things. But in the end, he is able to open up his own rock and roll school where he teaches these kids how to play the guitar. And and so in the end, all is good and they don't have to do the shady, uh, deceitful things anymore. Uh, but this brings me back to the point that we wanted to make about how this movie made us think of teachers that had an impact on us in our lives as we were going to school. I thought of a few. I thought of my third grade teacher who to this day, or my dad's retired, but she was insured by my dad for decades. And she had all of us Simpson kids in her class. She came to my wedding reception when I got married all those years later. And I'm friends with her on Facebook. Another one I thought of was a storytelling teacher that I had here at BYU who was not only just a good friend and someone who was very happy all the time and kind and had a good influence on me. She actually landed me some work. She referred me to some clients, and those were kind of my first big voiceover gigs that I ever had. And then another one, if you're looking at it from a more religious standpoint, I had a a religion teacher who encouraged me to do these things and stretched me to to read the scriptures and do those sorts of things. That had a huge impact on my life. That came at a very uh, important point in my life. It was really a turning point. So all three of these people had a huge impact on my life, and I will be forever grateful for them. I remember I had a teacher for pre-calculus and calculus that made me realize that teachers are people too. I think it was maybe the first time that I just saw a guy out at the bank that I should normally, like, you're not supposed to see teachers in their real life, but this was just that guy out being a normal person. And our senior year, his room got flooded. I I went to a very old high school and he had the corner room and he had a lot of personal effects, a lot of books that he had collected over the course of teaching, you know, math things that were in his room that all got destroyed by this flood. And He was so broken, and I remember he was a teacher, and he still taught us calculus that year. Wow. But it it just made me realize that these teachers—and I was a senior, as you are when you have to take calculus in Mm. high school, but I'm getting ready to be an adult myself, and I'm realizing that these teachers that I looked up to and and saw as, like, different from me were people, too, for the first time with him. And then I like that we got to talk about Mr. Jack Black, the music teacher, because my music teachers were the ones that I definitely associated with the most, and they they had the greatest— just real world impact on my life. They taught me the music things, but they were also my friends and they also um, were there for me to come to in a guidance counselor sort of way that I didn't, I had the trust with them. They were really good teachers. Sure. And I, I would get in trouble if I didn't mention 
another teacher that I had, my drama teacher, who had a huge impact on my life. I'm still friends with him today. He's hired me to do some work for him uh, to teach some of his students. So that was cool. I got to teach some of his students about voiceovers. But uh, great guy, good friend, and I'm also Facebook friends with him too and chat with them every once in a while. Teachers can be fantastic. So there you have it. We wanted to give you some some options for movies to watch about going back to school, not just so that you could be entertained, but also so that some of these questions could come up and you could actually have discussions with your children if you have children. A, a new school year is approaching, and so right. as we get ready, maybe some of your kids will be the new kid. Maybe they'll see new teachers in their hallways. Um, this can kind of give them perspectives on how to deal with the new world that's coming as summer closes. Right. And as a parent, you know, from day to day, we will complain about things at home. And I'm sure we would rather not switch places with our kids if we had the opportunity because they go through some really difficult things, too, just different difficult things. And then also, if any time you can sit back and reflect upon somebody that's made a difference in your life, that's a good thing. But more than just think about it, maybe send him a note, say thanks. Thanks for having an impact on my life. That's going to do it for this segment. When we return, we're going to come back with our panning for good segment. We're not going to look for the garbage this time. We're actually going to find the good in entertainment when we return. We've now reached Cole Wissinger's favorite part of the program, the panning for good segment. He just likes that stinger, I think. I enjoy when Jeff Simpson gets to voice act on our program. (laughs) So this is going to be a special panning for good because we mentioned at the top of the program that the actress Barbara Harris passed away recently at the age of 83. We mentioned a couple of films that she was in. She was nominated for an Academy Award. She was also the mother in Freaky Friday, the Jodie Foster version. But she also had a scene-stealing part in a little film called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels from two gentlemen that are commanding presences or presences themselves, Steve Martin and uh, Michael Caine. Michael Caine, a two-time Academy Award winner. If you're not familiar with the film, it's about these two con artists who have very different methods. Steve Martin is kind of the poor man's con man, if you will, whereas Michael Caine is very... uh, very proper and polite and has connections with police and just a very kind of a classy guy, right? But in one scene, Michael Caine cons poor old Fanny Eubanks from Omaha, played by Barbara Harris, and she he tricks her into thinking that he is royalty. And so she kind of follows him around and, you know, will bow down to him and She's so adorable in this movie. I mean, that name alone, Fanny Eubanks from Omaha, is worth is worth it to go check it out. But the film on its own is PG. If it were made today, it would probably be PG-13. But it also has another late actress in it, Glenn Headley, one of my favorites. And it, if you love con artist movies, you can't 
Do Wrong by Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, starring Michael Caine, Steve Martin, and the late Barbara Harris. Check it out. That's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We hope you have a fantastic weekend. BYU Sports Nation is up next. <laughs>